Hey, this is Ken Art of Wake Up Carolina. Because we're in such demand, we decided to do a podcast. Well, actually, it's like an archive of a previously broadcast show on the radio. So it's not a podcast. Well, it is presented as a podcast. So invite people to join us for whatever it is you just said they can join us for. That's right. Enjoy, and it starts now. Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. The dumb month in the rearview mirror, Cato. It's now March. That's right. Too many letters, too few days. February, a thing of the past. Today is Tuesday, March the 1st, 843-661-0937. This is always an exciting day of the year for me. I mean, the, the, my, my most favorite period of the year is Labor Day to the end of the year. College football, the weather begins cooling off. I mean, we've had our um, our feel of hot weather. Um, but January and February are what I call hunker down months. You just kind of survive. You sustain. You um you punish yourself for all the money you spent over the holidays that you didn't have. But you did it anyway. And it's kind of an annual affair. I'm not going to spend that much this year on my kids who probably don't deserve it. But you do. And you do it again and again and again and again. And January and February is the day that I say, okay, it's ramen noodles and potted and beat for the next uh, 60 days or so. <laughs> ramen noodles and what? And then potted and meat. Okay. That would be hog brain. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. And saltine crackers. Um, and diet Mountain Dew. I mean, there you go. In the good old days, it was Mountain Dew. Now it's diet mm. Mountain Dew because I'm a little bit more um, attuned to the ways of the world uh, today. But now it's March. What does that mean? That means, you know, spring's right around the corner. Normally, pitchers and catchers uh, would have already been reported, would have already reported, and we're waiting on uh, opening day of baseball season. Um, not the case now. The Daytona 500 happens. Uh, toward the end of February, that kind of like leads into, wow, okay, we're getting close now. So college basketball, March Madness, uh, which is now kind of April, but it's still called March Madness. Who wants to be April Madness? <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit like Springsteen. Doesn't Spring, quite have the ring to it. Springsteen in Broadway, he says, you know, I'm Mr. Born to Run. I'm Mr. Thunder Road. Uh, this town is a death trap. It's a suicide. I got to get out of here while the getting's good. And then he stops and says, I currently live six miles from the home I was raised in, but born to hang around. Who would buy that? <laughs> I'm cleaning this up a little bit now because he's from New Jersey, and we know how those folks with New Jersey um, take um, uh, literal uh, liberties with, with some of the way they uh, speak publicly. Uh, so anyway, good day today. Hey, it's also primary day in the state of Texas. You didn't know that, did you? Did but not. there's a big election in America today uh, in the state of Texas. They're having their GOP primary today and here's the race that matters you ready and here's why it matters the son of Je of jeb bush the nephew of george w bush is the yeah like the commissioner of uh, agriculture so he's got some fancy title um it's a big deal in texas it's a little bit like being a, a cattle officer in montana i mean i'm finding out through yellowstone um some of these offices they kind of laugh at you know the cattle officer i mean who cares to be well that's a big deal in montana May not be in, in South Carolina, but if you're in the cattle business and you're dependent upon some government agency populated by bureaucrats and elected officials, that's a big deal in that world. So in Texas, um, there, there's a hotly contested race between um, current AG Ken Paxton and the son of Jeb Bush, the nephew of George W. Bush, uh, George P. Bush. And I mean, you would imagine in Texas, that's a coronation, right? But who messes with the Bushes? Who messes with the Kennedys in Massachusetts? 
Not you nor I. Who messes with the bushes in Texas? Nobody better, right? Wrong. Ken Paxson <laughs> at 43%. George P. Bush at 20, about 22 or 3%. And um, Representative Gomer is in this race running for AG. I mean, he's kind of an oddball, quirky kind of guy. Um, somewhat of a conspiracy. Now, he's not somewhat of a conspiracy theorist. He's a, a, a hell-bent conspiracy theorist. Uh, he's only about 12 or 13%. But here's the deal. You ready? Yeah, why is this important? Because Donald Trump has endorsed Ken Paxson in this race. The poll came out yesterday that said the Trump endorsement is 49% more likely to make you vote for that candidate, 16% less likely, and 35% of the voters say it has no impact at all. So basically one half of all the voters say, yeah, I'm more likely to vote for someone who uh, Trump uh, you know, puts his stamp of approval on, uh, one-third say I'm less likely, excuse me, one-third say it has no impact at all, and only about 16% say they're less likely. Now, now the, the the proof is in the pudding. The truth will be in the numbers, but I think this is a, um, this is a precursor to what may happen uh, down the road in South Carolina. You know, what does the Trump endorsement still mean? How much does the Trump endorsement still matter? We speculate I mean, I think I kind of sort of understand some of that dynamic. I'm not sure I do. Has the energy behind Trump waned? Does it cut both ways? Well, I can tell you this, 49 beats 35 every time. 49 in particular beats 16 every time. Um, I think the number of people who it has no impact over will grow. I mean, I think as the president, you know, it is further and further and longer and longer removed from political office, I think that number grows. But but I just, you know, the 49% more likely, that's in a pretty intense number. I mean, it's not 70% as it was, you know, a year or two ago, but it's still a big number. 16% of Republicans are less likely to vote for a candidate uh, endorsed by Donald Trump. So when we look at the uh, the Texas primary today for the AG's office, they're, they're having elections. I mean, Abbott's got to contact, I mean, but this is, not, this is the only election that I find a bit interesting. And the only reason I find it interesting you got, you know, current AG Ken Paxson, who was under investigation. Imagine that. Anybody endorsed by Trump, here it comes, the investigation. I mean, if you curry favor with Trump or the Trump orbit, you're going to be investigated. I mean, that's just the nature of American politics as we speak. But uh, Paxson's at 43%. Now, here's the oddball. If Paxson gets 43%, there'll be a runoff in March, right? How will he fare uh, well, with the, with, the, with the George P. Bush crowd, in other words, will the go mayor and there's some other minor candidate, a female in this race, will, will that kind of, will they rally around um, George P. Bush or will they kind of split that vote? I can't imagine the Gomer voter, uh, the go mayor voter voting for George P. Bush. I mean, he's been um, a Trumpster for a long, long time, and he's at about 12% in these polls. So, um, so pay attention in Texas today to the AG's race between a Bush and uh, Ken Paxson with a Trump endorsement in his pocket, that, that'll that just be kind of interesting to me. Um, can the Trump endorsement force the uh, the defeat of a Bush in Texas? Hmm. And it's just kind of interesting here. George W. Bush has donated $100,000 to his nephew's campaign. Jeb Bush has donated 25000 to his son's campaign. So uncle gives more than son. Don't know that I understand that. Except Jeb doesn't live in Texas any longer. He's in Florida. And, um, and and George W. still lives in, I think, Crawford, Texas, 
if I'm not mistaken, out on the ranch, you know, <laughs> uh, playing cowboy, if you know what I mean. Um, I don't know how long George will last in Yellowstone, but he plays cowboy with the best of them. <laughs> so um, what are you laughing about? I mean, do you think he's a real cowboy? Um, <clears throat> I was more laughing about your re- continuous references to Yellowstone. It's a, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, and I tried to start it. I, I, I'm just not subscribed to a, the channel that has, um, I guess, the first season. Yeah. And I, I want to start it. It's on YouTube television. You're a subscriber to YouTube. Yeah. It's on YouTube. Is it? I couldn't tell you how I found it, okay. but I found it. It All was right. recommended to me. Okay. Maybe I said something about Yellowstone. And my, you know, I mean, I'm convinced they <laughs> okay. listen to us more uh, than we believe they do. <laughs> but, but you kind of learned the way it works in Montana by Yellowstone. Yeah. Yeah, because I found out how big, I mean, I always thought about, you know, I mean, Montana is a is, is, is cowboy country. I mean, there are a lot of cattle and a, and a lot of ranches, a lot of farming. Um, but if you're a cattle officer, I mean, that's a big deal. Uh, I'm not worried about the governor. Let's just don't make those cattle officers mad. <laughs> you know what I mean? I can deal with the governor. I can deal with the senator. I can deal with the congressman. Let's just leave those cattle officers alone. If we're going to leave a bag of cash for anybody in Montana, let's leave that bag of cash for some of those cattle officers because they genuinely affect and, and kind of change the way. And, it's, and what it is, Rev, is this land disputes that is, um, you know, cattle grazing. The cattle doesn't know what's your land or mine. And fences fall and, and get in a state of disrepair. The next thing you know, my cattle are feeding on your property and we have this conflict. And you don't want to shoot me and I don't want to shoot you. Uh, so, so, you know, the cattle officer or the cattle commission comes in and settles some of that dispute. Um, how much of Mr. Bar- uh, Baker's grain did Mr. Ard's cattle eat? You know, and we have some of these uh, settlements that take place. It's just kind of an interesting, uh, yeah, the governor doesn't do that. The Congress doesn't do that. The the senator doesn't do that. Um, but these cattle commissions uh, do. So we, if we got a bag of cash in Montana and we want to make sure we, we influence the politicians that need to be influenced, give it to the cattle commissioners. Uh, that, that's more bang for your buck. And giving it to the um now we would never leave bags of cash in America. That's all to Ukraine and Russia. Um, I spent about two hours yesterday trying to clearly understand. Now that's pretty arrogant to believe I could do this in two hours. Clearly understand uh, the corruption status of Ukraine. But I want to give a cliff note version of what I think. Um, because several of our callers yesterday, I just don't buy it. I don't believe it. I mean, we're talking about shooting airplanes down. I don't see the airplane. We're talking about blowing tanks up. I don't see the tanks. We're talking about killing Russian soldiers. I don't see any dead bodies. Um, We're highly skeptical as a public today. And you have a right to be. I mean, you should be highly skeptical. Kato's not his head. Yeah, you better believe I'm highly skeptical. Kato is a Bible-thumping, highly skeptical political observer. And join the club. I mean, the majority of us are, are there. But when Barry kind of went down that road yesterday, I just don't know where he was trying to go. I don't know what he, you know, um, Larry's talking about. They say this big plane was shot down. Where's the plane? Well, we saw some visuals yesterday of blown up tanks and, uh, you know, armored vehicles and convoys making their way into Ukraine. Uh, but I've kind of sort of... Um, the, not a deep dive. I'm not going to say I've done a deep dive because I didn't have time to do a deep dive. But but I've gone through some of the um some of the realities of what has happened in Ukraine since the fall of the Soviet Union, and I think we can do a pretty decent job. It's a little bit GI Joe with the Kung Fu grippish, but but we'll give some sort of accounting as to um. Well, maybe the, I can understand it if it's more. Well, I mean, it, it's not hard to understand. I mean, it, it, it is. Once I describe it, it'll be exactly as you expected. Once I say, hey, here's what kind of sort of happened since the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 91 until today. 
you'll probably go, ah, that makes perfect sense. But when you don't live in Ukraine, when you don't care about Ukraine, when you don't spend much of your time worried about what happens with the Ukrainian-Russian border, the only reason we're really concerned today is, is Putin has brought up this nuclear weapon option. I mean, for the first time since the Bay of Pigs, a, a world leader has threatened, you know, a nuclear weapon attack. That, that gets everybody's attention. I mean, that, that really, is he a crazy man? Is he a bad man? Is he a psychopath? Uh, none of us know that. You don't know. I don't know. No, I mean, it seems to me he's a little bit different today than he historically has been. Has anybody seen the, the visual of he at a table with some of his leaders and they're all the way at one it's end of the table? about a mile along the table. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They're, they're all the way at the one end of the table and he's at the other end. I heard a couple of reports yesterday that called him puffy. And because he's um, taking some sort of steroid, he's got some kind of medical condition. I mean, rumors abound. Nobody knows. I mean, how many, you know, does he have a food tester? You know, is he paranoid about COVID? Is he paranoid about, ger- is he a germaphobe? I don't know. I don't, I don't have any idea. You don't either. None of us know that the state of mind Vladimir Putin is in, but he offered up over the weekend the nuclear option. That gets everybody's attention. It got Germany's attention to the point that they are going to double their military spending. They're going to be far more supportive of NATO. Um, Vladimir Putin did something that no other Western leader has been able to do, and that is rally the Western world. And, and I, don't, I don't know that we're as concerned about Ukraine and Russia as we appear to be. I think it gives you a reason, and I think the Russian, uh, excuse me, the Ukrainian fighting the way they are, it inspires us to want to do something. I mean, we, we discussed that a bit yesterday. When we, when we know those Ukrainians are fighting with everything they have, we seem to be a little more inspired and inclined to help, aid, and assist. I mean, wouldn't we all agree to that? I mean, we've said it before. We're not Vulcans. We're not creatures of logic. We're emotional. We're, we're as guilty of that as anybody. So when we have this um, this reservoir of, of military equipment and might, we're, we're a little more inclined to, to export some of that military power to places that appear to be interested in defending themselves. I mean, that's not unusual, is it? I mean, that does stand to reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, if Ukrainians, you know, fold a tent and ran, I mean, the, the American military experts and leaders would probably say, no, we can't do anything about that. I mean, these people didn't even fight for their own country. But what have, he, what have we historically said as Americans, even kind of the non-interventionist Americans? You know, Ukraine should be defending Ukraine. Well, they are with everything they've got. It just ain't going to be enough, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of hilarious to me that there's still a mindset out there that Ukraine can whip Russia. I mean, I think Russia turned up the intensity yesterday. I mean, he saw some of that. The second largest city, can't think of the name, it might, L-Y-I-V, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it was under heavy, heavy, heavy attack, unlike any we've seen thus far. So a lot of the Western leadership believes that because Ukraine was so effective for four or five days, didn't roll over, didn't leave the country, didn't, you know, bolt off to Poland, but said, no, give me my gun, I'll stand and fight. That, that it has forced Putin's hand, and, and he's, th- th- there's a more intense onslaught of Ukraine today as we speak. Someone on the phone? Let's go there before we take our break. Dale in Florence. Good morning, Dale. Morning, guys. Um, and, and, and on that subject, I just want to say I'm proud of those people as well. I would like to think that if it was our country being invaded, that we would do the same thing. I'm just not so sure that we would. Uh, for, 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 for the populace to, just to rally around and go towards the sound of the fighting and to go get a gun and some, some bullets. And that's all they're doing. They pick up a 
gun and a pocket full of bullets, and they go fight as long as they can, and then they come back and get some more bullets. Um, on the political front, so do you guys think Tom Rice is going to come and introduce the President Trump when he shows up at the airport in a couple of weeks, or will he probably skip that one? <laughs> uh, he'll probably skip that one. Um, that's going to be interesting. I, I wonder if you guys were going to like send Randy down there to the airport with a microphone, you know, the the, the, the reporter on the spot getting interviews with people and stuff. I thought that'd be kind of funny. But uh, that's going to be interesting to see in our own backyard what kind of leverage President Trump can come up with the candidate of his choice. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate that. Rev asked me this morning, you know, how involved Trump will be in this campaign. I don't have any idea. I mean, I, you know, he endorsed Ken Paxson in Texas. That that election is today. He's endorsed Russell Fry in the 7th Congressional District. Um, that election will happen in June. Um, I don't have any idea how intensely involved Trump will be in any of these races. Um, you know, Louis Gohmert is a, I mean, he's a Trumpster, but he's not endorsed by Trump. Um, Ken Richardson, here in our neck of the woods, uh, professes to be a Trumpster, but he's not endorsed by Donald Trump. I actually saw some signs at the beach, and it's it, it's very creative, and it's kind of interesting, and I think it, it gets a point across. Now, how effective, I don't know, um, but it says... Trump endorsed the wrong guy. Fry is not the guy. No, Trump endorsed, but not the right guy. It's something like that. Uh, <laughs> Fry is not the right guy. There you go. Fry is not the right guy. And, um, and you know, everybody's kind of playing off that. But 49% in Texas, and that's this is today's number, 49 as we go to the poll today in Texas to vote for the AG. And the, the reason it's a interesting election, uh, Bush is on the ballot. The son of Jeb, nephew of, of George W., but... Ken Paxson is at 43%. 49% of Texas primary voters are more likely to vote for someone who has been endorsed by Donald Trump. What is that number in South Carolina in the 7th Congressional District? Don't have any idea. Here, here's another interesting part. The governor is coming to be a part of this rally in Florence. Is that a an indirect endorsement of Russell Fry? I mean, I, I got to believe Henry was saying, no, 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 I bet them boys figure, figure that out themselves. I got nothing <laughs> to do with that. I'll let them boys figure that out by themselves. Uh, but he's going to be there with President Trump, um, you know, a couple of sat. well, not this Saturday, but the following. Take a break. Back in just a minute. I guess in a weird kind of way, I'm arguing that what happens in Texas today will have some sort of impact on what happens in South Carolina uh, in June. I mean, it, at least it's an indicator. To me, it is. I mean, you know, has the Trump intensity waned or not? Does the Trump endorsement carry that sort of weight or not? Um, can someone win against a candidate who is being endorsed by Donald? We know that can happen. I mean, we've had Trump endorsed candidates have not won every election. Um, but but a Bush in Texas is kind of like royalty. I mean, it's a little bit like the coronation. I mean, uh, if you're a Kennedy in Massachusetts, you decide you want to run for office. Most of the time. People get out of the way. They don't run. Why? Because I don't run against Kennedy in Massachusetts. I mean, I know the network of support they built over the years. Whether you like it or not, Bush in Texas, kind of sort of the same way. And George P. Bush has tried to fancy himself as a Trumpster. I mean, a lot of his advertising has Donald Trump in the background. I mean, he understands. He's well aware of the excitement that Trump still establishes in some of these varying states. But but if I were Tom Rice or Russell Fryer, Ken Richardson, well, I really Russell and Tom, uh, one impeached the president, the other is a former president, the other has been endorsed by Trump. Um, 
the, the, what what happens in Texas today is going to have some bearing on what to expect in June of uh, of this year in this seventh congressional race. Now, now, does it create absolute clarity? No, of course it doesn't. Every race is different. Every campaign is different. Every candidate has different skill sets and qualities. Uh, but looking down the road, I think it, it to, to today in Texas is going to allow us to more clearly see what to expect in South Carolina uh, come this primary in June. Now, somebody said it a minute ago, and we talked a little bit about it. Um, March the 12th, Donald Trump will be in Florence at the airport. Uh, that, that's kind of sort of been a rumor for a month or so. Um, it hit my radar about a month ago. Ref came, I came in one day, and I said, and I think Trump's coming to South Carolina. Um, I assumed at the time he'd go to the beach. I mean, I just did 52% of the vote in the 7th Congressional District are in the beach or at the beach. Um, but he's coming to rally, and here's what the language, it's not, an, it's not a rally for Russell Fry, and maybe that's why he's coming a little inland. Uh, it's, it's a rally for uh, the Republican brand in South Carolina, uh, the America Firster brand in, uh, in South Carolina. The governor's going to participate. I don't know who else they'll add. Uh, they're adding speakers as we speak. They're trying to align or line up the event. Um, but if it were exclusively for Russell Fry, it would probably be in Myrtle Beach. I mean, that's, that's the epicenter of all the votes in the 7th Congressional I mean, District. I mean, Trump is interested in the uh, Congressional one-seat yeah, race with, as well. Katie Arrington and, uh, and, Nancy, Mace. and Mace, Nancy Mace, yeah, they, they're hotly contested, uh, you know, two females running for Congress uh, as Republicans down, uh, down in, the, um, in the 1st Congressional District of Charleston, uh, the holy city. And um, Charleston's a little bit different. I mean, Charleston's a little more eclectic and um, uh, metropolitan than most of South Carolina. Um, every time you go to Charleston, on the peninsula, mind you, not, not Mount Pleasant, but the peninsula, uh, when you get out there, you see a lot more uh, men wearing skinny jeans walking poodles than you would uh, in some of the other places around South Carolina. So it's not quite as red as some of the other areas. Joe Cunningham proved that a couple of years ago by upsetting um, whom? Katie Arrington. So Arrington gets the endorsement of Trump, and I don't know really what Mace is doing to get crossed up with Trump. We know what Rice has done, uh, voted to impeach, but I don't know what Nancy Mace has done to fall out of grace or if this is some uh, pre-existing loyalty that Trump has to Katie Arrington in the 1st Congressional um, District. Something else happening today, tonight, that will have some impact on where we go from here is um, Joe Biden's State of the Union. Um, now, now some, of the, some of the preliminary report says that he's going to redefine the arc of the presidency. I mean, that's kind of every, every State of the Union, uh, there'll, there'll be some, I don't know, leaks of what to expect when he addresses the nation tonight. There'll probably be 25 million people, might be a little more this year because of what's happening in the world. And there's a little more um, political interest today than there normally is because somebody uttered the words nuclear weapon. You know, you watch Seinfeld and watch Seinfeld and watch Seinfeld. Somebody says nuclear bomb. You're like, turn that thing to turn that thing to Fox for a minute. <laughs> you know, turn that TV over to CNN yeah, for just serious. a minute. This is serious biz. Yeah, I don't care about the Republicans and Democrats because both parties are full of it. But somebody just said nuclear bomb. Turn that television to CNN or Fox News or MSNBC and let me just get at least somewhat of a general feel as to where we're going. I don't know what Biden can do. I mean, I looked at some of these numbers this morning. Um, his approval with independence or 29%. I mean, I don't know where you go from there. I mean, I really don't. He's, he's still got the approval of the rank-and-file Democrat. You would expect that. I mean, they're taking one for the team. 
they're wearing their garnet jersey or wearing their orange jersey, and they're fully in bed with, uh, you know, c- kind of that political party come hell or high water. Um, the Republicans, his support amongst Republicans is only 6%. Um, what, what Republican out there supports Joe Biden? I mean, 6% is a minuscule number, but it's still six of every 100 Republicans who support Biden. It's you're still not a, a hard, Republican. hard to believe. No. Yeah, I mean, you're just playing a joke on a pollster is what you're doing. Um, Joe Biden's support amongst Republicans is zero. I mean, I can tell you what the what, what the number really is, but you can't say zero at a poll. And people play games and say they're a Republican when they really aren't. Um, so, so when you've got um, when you got, I wrote three factors down this morning. It's hard to redefine the arc of the presidency when only twenty nine percent of independents have faith in your ability to govern. Combine that with what we just said. All of a sudden, nuclear wars on the table. I mean, it's still far-fetched. It's still way over there somewhere. It's still kind of a fringe, extreme argument to make. But but it's now being discussed. We just said it a second ago. Somebody yesterday turned a television or a computer uh, on and said, hey, I don't go to foxnews.com much. I don't flip from Seinfeld to CNN much. But, but I, I was riding home from work. I was at work. I was circulating in my sphere of influence. And somebody said something about nuclear weapons and nuclear war. I just want to make sure I don't get uh, you know vaporized without me knowing about it. I mean, if I'm going to be vaporized by a nuclear bomb, at least let me know in advance that it may be coming. You're probably better off watching Seinfeld, to be honest with you, and continuing on your merry way in some way other than uh, political, politically inclined. But um, when, you're, when your approvals with independence are 29, nuclear war is in the backdrop and 50% of Americans don't believe you have the mental capacity to do the job. I don't know how you redefine the arc. you got to be a real good politician to overcome those three political realities in redefining the political arc. Um, but I guess you try to pump a little, you know, I don't know, Rev, um, find a way to put some wind in the sail of Democrats. I mean, you're done. I mean, I don't know anybody that doesn't believe that. I mean, Joe Biden's so far underwater so deep in the hole, uh, the American people have lost faith in his ability to, to coherently um, think clearly and to govern effectively, and that's you don't win that back. I mean, you, you can make a mistake and win uh, a certain group of Americans back. When you appear to be as incoherent and in cognitive decline, you just don't win that back. You don't. I mean, that's not having a bad day. That's not a faux pas on the campaign trail. Everybody understands to some degree that candidates say things, or excuse me, um, presidents say things they wish they hadn't said. I mean, history's full of that. But but once people make their mind up that you are, I mean, half the country, and we're about equally divided between Republicans and Democrats, half the country believe this guy is not just a bad president, he doesn't have the cognitive capacity today to do the job effectively. You don't redefine the arc when that's a part of the political reality. So he's done. I mean, there's nothing he can do to reestablish, um, hey, you know, I got off to a rough start, but I'm ready now. I mean, you know, my vitamins came in the mail. I've been eating my Wheaties every morning. I'm going to the gym for a couple of hours every day. I mean, I'm back in bed. Joe Biden is back. <laughs> you know, lunch pale Joe is back. Yeah, things are going pretty good in the, the world. Job. Well, I mean... <laughs> Things are going horribly in the world, and he's a lot of this. I mean, a lot of it's not his fault, but he appears to not have the ability to do anything about it. I mean, he just lacks to 
the the wherewithal and the fortitude to address any any of these issues. And um, and Ukraine is front and center. You know, when you look at Putin strategically deciding what to do and when to do it, a lot of this was, I mean, I can't help but believe, and this doesn't show up in a poll, and this is not something the mainstream media will talk about, but I got to believe that Putin and his fellow um, oligarchs sit in a room somewhere drinking Russian vodka saying, hey, did you know that there's a, a, a dude that's win, winning swimming meets in the Ivy League, the prestigious Ivy League? the thought leaders of America, um, so some of the premier um, leadership of the Western world have been educated in some of those fine institutions. Did you know that they're letting a dude swim with women and he's shattering records and they're continuing? I mean, nobody's doing anything about it. I mean, you, you can't help but believe that. Um, gender neutrality. But you, you not believe that Putin and some of his fellow oligarchs smoking cigars and drinking Russian vodka sat one day idly by and said, hey, did you know that in America today, a seven-year-old kid can sign a legally binding contract that allows them to have a sex change operation? Isn't it about time to invade? I mean, really and truly, Ukraine's got some natural resources. Um, they, you know, I, I still think they're, they're a part of Mother Russia. I know they aren't. I know what happened in 91. And I know the Western world, NATO in particular, have always been lined up ready to defend Ukraine, ready to defend the Western alliance, ready to defend uh, the European Union. But I don't know. Being ready and being able are two different things. And, uh, you know, Macron and some of the nonsensical things he said, Trudeau, you know, charging truckers as if they were terrorists. I mean, you really, I mean, Putin is not a moron. I mean, I mean, maybe he's in decline. Maybe he's different today than he was years and years and years ago. But I threatened this earlier this morning. I want to go back to this after we take our next break. Um, Ukraine is a corrupt nation, but it's a nation trying to address its corruption, and that's the problem Putin has. Putin sees Ukraine as a, uh, a, a case study, or let, let's do this better, a laboratory of democracy in action, a fledgling democracy, trying to change things culturally and historically that have always been a certain way with some modicum of success. And and that that's a threat to Putin, and he addresses accordingly. But I want to go back after this break and try to walk you through. This will be cliff note. I mean, we don't have time to go through blow by blow what happened, when it happened, how it happened, what were the consequences, repercussions were. But I want to, when we get back, let's 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 go down the road of Ukrainian corruption. Burisma is a part of this, and I'll call a name. Um, Mykola Zlovinsky. He's the CEO and founder of Burisma. Believe it or not, he's a former Russian oligarch. That surprises everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. So when this when the Soviet Union dissolved in nineteen ninety one, think of this for a second. Now, um, you had a state planned economy collapse, right? I mean, the state ran everything. It was communism. It was um, it was not free market. It was not the the private sector. You had a state planned economy collapse right before your very eyes. Um, state enterprises went bankrupt. Um, what happens when the state enterprises went bankrupt? They had to be privatized on the principle of first come, first serve. 
So you've got a state-run economy, you've got state-planned everything, and all of a sudden lawlessness and chaos ensues, and it basically boils down to we're going to privatize all these businesses, and it's basically first come, first, curse, first serve. Well, that gave birth to these oligarchs. I mean, they're the most aggressive of, of anybody. So they're, I mean, it would stand to reason if you've got lithium and coal and titanium and iron and natural and natural gas, it's not for the meek or mild, right? I mean, the aggressive business minds, the aggressive business people are going to be um, most inclined to have a hostile takeover of the state planned economy. So in, in the 1990s, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Powerful businessmen took over a lot of key sectors of the economy. Energy, um, energy and extraction of natural resources is probably Ukraine's biggest two ingredients to economic development and and resources. Um, so in the in the in the two thousands, the early two thousands, um, in order to protect the sources of what we'll call mega profits, and good lord, they were mega profits. I mean, when when you get a business for nothing. In other words, if the government is, if the state has planned all this economic activity, all of a sudden the state that planned that economic activity is no longer in business, there's there's a lot of profit to be made. And it was, I mean, a lot of profit. They started building, uh, so, 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 so the oligarchs come in after the, the, you know, the Soviet Union dissolves. The oligarchs come in. They took over the, the lithium mines, the coal mines, the titanium. All the extracting of natural resources is in the hands of these oligarchs. And they're making tons of money. People begin to question whether or not it's right that these few oligarchs own all the rights to lithium, coal, titanium, iron, natural gas. So they start, what, what the oligarchs did is what any oligarch would do. They begin buying up the media companies, any media asset, um, and opening up new ones. Why? To influence public opinion um, in general and electoral op- outcomes, right? I mean, you, you got to buy the media. I mean, if the state had run everything, if the state doesn't run it anymore, the oligarchs say, well, we'll run it. We don't mind. So not only were the oligarchs in charge of all the extracting of natural resources, which is the bigger, biggest part of the Ukrainian economy, formerly the Soviet Union's economy, they began to buy the media outlets to make sure the to- story was told as they needed the story to be told. Um, they would praise these local politicians um, and give them a platform on popular shows and popular networks, um, and they punish the disloyal. I mean, if you were a you know a part of the oligarchs taking over, you were well taken care of. I mean, a politician gets reelected, he probably gets a bag of cash. But you know, if you were disloyal, they punished. Um, and then Parliament began passing laws benefiting certain oligarchs. Why? Because they're buying off the politicians, um, and that was quite a common practice. As the the the, uh, the Ukrainian people kind of made their way um, into this new existence as Ukrainians, not uh, members of the Soviet Union any longer, so you had this um, ah, vicious cycle of oligarchy that was in control of the country that formerly was in the hands of um, of central planning, you know, state-run economy. Um, believe it or not, they may have bribed a few judges. I mean, that's surprising, isn't it? Um, the judges made decisions not on their discretion, but what only oligarchs wanted. Um, there, there are now reports of millions of dollars embezzled on public procurements, and that was annually. Um, Health care, infrastructure, the military. Once again, the extraction of natural resources was in the hands not of a communist regime, 
but oligarchs who had basically, you know, strong-armed their way into controlling all this. And then in 2015, the Ukrainian government opened up some state databases. The Ukrainian government began toying around with the idea of democracy. So it's only about seven years into um, this fledgling democracy. But in 2015, the Ukrainian government opened up state databases, including real estate, vehicle, land, and company registries. Why do they need registries? Um, because what, what they wanted to do was show people were not earning the money. They were not properly making the money. Since 2016, this is interesting to me, around 1 million public servants, I say that uh, with tongue firmly planted in cheek, have submitted by declaration what, what they call asset declarations in this electronic declaration system, and they have to do it annually. Why do they do that, Reb? They must report their and their family members' incomes, assets, real estate, valuable property, corporate rights, beneficial ownership of companies, bank accounts. They even go as far as art, fur coats, um, hard cash that they may have locked in a safety deposit box. Um, and if there's a gross discrepancy between their lifestyle and their income, they could face administrative or criminal sanctions. It's to expose corruption is what it did. But from 91 until 2015, it was a free-for-all. I mean, it was an absolute free-for-all. All the state-run businesses that weren't state-run any longer were just strong-armed, taken over by the oligarchs. And for about 20 years, the oligarchs ran it as they saw fit to run it. Until 2015, when some of the legislative authorities said, we can't run a country like this any longer. This is no different than where we were. This is no different than how we used to do things. An oligarch is no different than a communist dictator. And they're trying and have tried recently in particular. And I'll try to expound upon why this is such a threat to Vladimir Putin and the communist way of life. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. It's not hard to be successful in the lithium business if you don't have to pay anything for it. Or the coal business or the titanium business or the iron business or the natural gas business, uh, the energy business, the, the, the natural resource business. I mean, if you don't have to invest $100 million in buying uh, an existing business, it's not real hard to be good at it. I mean, if the state-run economy falls apart, and, and basically it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's a free-for-all, and all of those state-run businesses are, um, once again, the word I use is strong-armed, because I got to believe that's how it went down, Right. I mean, that's some of the oligarchs, the real hard-nosed business guys. I think guys. that's how they roll. I mean, yeah. And then next thing you know, you got a $50 million yacht and a house in Miami and a house in Manhattan and a house in Malibu. And um, you're, you're a genius at business. You weren't a genius at business. You didn't start Apple Computer. The, the Soviet Union falls apart. We know that Ukraine has an abundance of natural resources. I mean, it's a, it's a big exporter of lithium, coal, titanium, iron, natural gas, a huge exporter of those natural resources, and you could argue the free market would do a more effective and efficient job of extracting some of those some of those resources. But that's when, when we talk about Ukraine's corruption, and we had kind of a conversation back and forth, and I actually discussed this with a friend of mine late yesterday afternoon. Um, why do we trust the Ukrainians? I don't know that I do. I mean, I'm not suggesting we trust the Ukrainians. 
Um, do you believe your lying eyes? You know, there's some things we've seen on on in, in the media. There's some things we've not seen on the media. Um, but but Ukraine's corruption-related problems go back to the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 90s, 1991 to be exact. Uh, and that is when the state-planned economies collapsed and the state enterprise went bankrupt, right? I mean, when when, when the country is, is dissolved, the businesses that are state-run, I mean, in, in mine and your world, Rev, it would be go bankrupt and they were privatized on some principle. And from what I'm gathering, the principle was first come, first serve. And the biggest, strongest, baddest, normally get front of the line, uh, they... They, they revel in the chaos. They revel in some of the lawlessness, and that gave birth to the Ukrainian oligarchs. So you got a state-run economy now run by corrupt oligarchs. And, and what the oligarchs do, I mean, if, if, if all of a sudden you end up with a, a lithium business or a coal business or a natural gas business, um, you want to protect the resources or, or you want to protect the sources of some of those profits, and that's when they got into building these media holdings. Which is in, in a weird way, you got to give credit where credit's due. It's smart, control the narrative. Isn't that what we accuse the liberal Democrats of in America? So the oligarchs began controlling the narrative by praising loyal politicians who took their bribes and punishing the disloyal who didn't take their bribes. And uh, as a result of that, or consequently, uh, consequently, parliament began passing laws that benefited certain oligarchs more than. Uh, the, the common practice of business. So so there is kind of the cliff note version and why and it's a vicious cycle of oligarchy. I mean, the oligarchs, it's not communism anymore, but the economy's run by, by state, uh, by, by oligarchs, and they began laundering money in some of these Western financial institutions. I mean, I've got a um, somewhat of a friend. He's more of an acquaintance than a friend, but he's in real estate in Miami, and he tells me the Russians are buying everything. I mean, the $4 million, you know, uh, waterfront condo, they're, they're paying $5 million for it. And I'm going, you mean the Russians? What, what do you mean the Russians are paying for everything? But, but all of this was uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, the creation of these, th- these businesses that were state-run, now in the hands of um, pe- people like Viktor um, Yanukovych. Uh, but he's the Ukrainian, he was the Ukrainian president from 2010 to 2014, but he decided it would be better being an oligarch. <laughs> so, so he left the presidency <laughs> and became a, um, an oligarch. Now, he had uh, very pro-Russian policies. But in about 15, um, in about 15, something happened. And I don't have any idea why. Scott Kaufman may know. He'll be here in about an hour. But in about 15, the Ukrainian government began opening this database. And the database included... A lot of these oligarchs' information, real estate, vehicle, land, company registries, and what they wanted to know, Rev, was um, do do these declarations align? If you say, I mean, if you've got, um, if you are a family member or you and family members are reporting income of, let's say, you know, uh, what, what would be the equivalent of $50,000 a year, and you've got all these enormous assets in real estate, valuable property, you got corporate rights, you got beneficial ownership of companies, you got bank accounts, you got art, your wife's got a fur coat, you got a yacht, you got a house in, in Malibu and a house in Miami. We know something's not adding up there. So there are gross discrepancies between lifestyle and income. 
Um, and the in 15, the Ukrainian government said those people will either face administrative or criminal sanctions to expose some of this corruption. This is before Zelensky. Zelensky gets elected in 19. I mean, imagine this. The two most uh, disruptive politicians in the world in the last, what, 10 years, uh, maybe the last 50 years, have been a reality TV star, real estate uh, company owner, and a comedian slash actor from Ukraine. I mean, they, you know, Zelensky has left his mark. Now, I don't know how corrupt or not Zelensky is, but he's continuing in the effort to expose this corruption. And if you think about what, what is Putin's worst nightmare? Transparency, correct? I mean, if he's got a neighbor to the, to the south, formerly of the Soviet Union, and they're working on these new institutions that are going to um, encourage journalists to more accurately report what is and what ain't. Um, and as the corruption is revealed, as the corruption is reported on, um, transparency carries the day. That's the last thing Vladimir Putin wants in his world of uh, kleptocrats, autocrats, oligarchs. I mean, you, you know that he doesn't want any part of transparency and accountability. So, so when we say Ukraine is corrupt, yes, there's a lot of corruption about the country of Ukraine. But it appears to me they've tried to set their country on a course of a life similar to ours. That They're a baby at it. They're an infant in the world of fledgling democracies. Um, but that's my interpretation of what we're dealing with um, there today. Now, once again, that is the cliff note version. Obviously, it's far more entailed, detailed, specific, and, um, you know, bending than, than I've uh, pronounced here over the airways in the last few minutes. But um, these criminal justice institutions that never existed in Ukraine are now in existence, and they prosecuted some of these oligarchs, probably friendlies uh, of Putin and probably pro-Russian oligarchs in Ukraine. I doubt they're in Ukraine today. They're probably on their yacht in Miami. I mean, they got on the first thing smoking. When the bullets started flying, you got to believe they did. The people staying and fighting in Ukraine, let's give those folks a little more credit than maybe we've given them before. It seems to me they're genuinely interested in, in, in being more like the Western world than the Soviet Union. Now, 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 how Western? I don't have any idea. It's still a cultural, historical element there that, that very few of us understand. Let's go to the phone. Here is Larry in the PD. Hello, Larry. Good morning. So let me get this right. You just said that for about the past 30 years, a handful of ultra-rich, hyper-capitalist-minded people took over the press and then by way of that, the government. But what happened in Ukraine? <laughs> that is Ukraine. Oh, my gosh. Sounds familiar, I know, though. I say, you could have been telling the story. If you oh, know. okay. Yeah, I got yeah, you. Yeah, I got right that flew there, right over my head. Yeah, I got, Bingo. I got, I got you, Larry. <laughs> so what happened in Ukraine? Uh, I, wish that, I wish that we wouldn't use the term oligarch. I wish we would just use the term thug, because probably what these folks really were is, if you think about it in, in communist world, they were probably the people that ran the black market. You know, when you have a communist society, there's always going to be a free market, even if it's a black market. Mm -hmm. So these guys were used to working outside the law, working in the shadows, working behind the back of the government. 
because they were the only people that really knew anything about how to run anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're thugs. Um, and, and I would say hyper-capitalists, because that's kind of what a criminal is. I mean, a bank robber is the most sincerest capitalist there is, right? He, I want the capital, man. Give me the money. Uh, they don't they don't want to work for it. But And I've always said that, that communism and hyper-capitalism sort of move together in pairs. And the thing that scares me about all of this, I, I think we've spent a good bit of time and I think it's been a good exercise to learn about Ukraine and learn about Russia and Ukraine's relationship over the years. But I think what's coming next is if Russia kind of gets away with this, whether they're successful or not, what does China do with Taiwan? What does China do? You know, because if we can't stop a Russian, you know, army on the doorstep of the West, what are we going to do deep in the center of Asia? If China makes a move, and, you know, are we going to be explaining the long, complicated history between China and Taiwan, um, just like we're trying to explain away the long, complicated history between Russia and Ukraine, and try to make sense of it, because it's a reality that we just can't do anything about? Um, I just wonder if, if, the, if we're not going to be redrawing some maps, if Rand McNally's going to have, you know, an old, crusty old cartographer's going to have to wake up and redraw the maps uh, here really soon if we're not careful. And I don't know if that's good for us. I think that's interesting, Larry. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. And I do think it's very interesting that we're having somewhat of an exercise in trying to understand. I mean, I didn't know much about Ukraine and Russia. I mean, everything I knew about Russia is, is Cold War related. I mean, as a kid being taught in public schools, the Cold War, the realities of the Cold War. I was born in 1963. So, so my youth was full of, you know, Red Dawn and, and nuclear missiles and, and so, some, of the, um, some of the Russian leadership and uh, so some of the American leadership. I, I knew nothing about Ukraine. And I want to be careful here, guys. I am no expert on Ukraine. Please understand. I mean, this is about a day and a half worth of studying. I mean, this is not some uh, Harvard lecture series of a, um, an Eastern European lecturer you know, uh, and me taking notes and trying to understand and digest, and, and I've not been to Ukraine, I've not been to Russia. So, so everything I'm telling you is very surfacy, so to speak. But it's fairly accurate, and, and it's corroborated by, you know, mu- multiple sources. I mean, that's kind of the way. Now, now once again, we gave the cliff note. that The state-run economy falls apart. The, 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 uh, the, the valuable assets within Ukraine fall in the hands of, I think Larry's right, hyper-capitalist. I mean, we call them oligarchs, we call them thugs, but it's, it's hyper-capitalist. The, these people are far motivated to have all the money than you are, right? I mean, they, you know, they get in line quicker than you do. They don't have any problem at all, morally or ethically, taking over lithium, coal, uh, titanium, iron, natural gas, oil. They've got no problem taking it over. Um, the majority of Americans would probably try to say, that's not really mine, man. But, but the hyper-capitalist would say, hey, to every loser, there's a winner. You know, the state-run economy is gone. There, that's going to be an opportunity for winners. And, and, and some of these thugs, some of these hyper-capitalists step in and, and take over the role and responsibility of being, you know, running the economy, being in charge and in control of the economy. I, I, you know, that first comment Larry said went right over my head. I'm a little embarrassed of that. I see exactly what he's saying. It does sound eerily familiar. I mean, it sounds exactly like a lot of the Western world. Um, and I guess when you go to China, and, and the only difference with China to me, 
is that, you know, the size of the economy, the growth within the economy. China has become the, the world's manufacturing plant. I mean, that creates a, a diversity within that Russia's never had. John McCain famously said that Russia is a gas station disguised as a nation. And, and all of Putin's, whomever is in charge of Russia, the, the majority of their leverage comes from what? Being a big producer of energy. So when energy production is in decline, Russia becomes a more prominent player. That there are a lot of things that went into Putin's calculus on why now? Why now invade Ukraine? You know, I think the, the, the question we ask ourselves is this. What if Putin had simply gone to Ukraine and tried to secure some of those what he referred to as independent republics, some of the eastern territories in, in Ukraine? What if that's all he did? Do any of us care? Do any of us give a rat's rear end who's in charge of those that, that little bit of eastern territory, Donsk and Luskutsk, because, I mean, they're, they're, you know, it's in the Donbass region. Um, would we have, but, but all of a sudden you see a, a capital of a country under attack, under siege, and, and you see buildings and apartment complexes blown up and innocent people being killed. I don't know, the emotions of being Western. Or, 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 I don't know, they come into play. We get motivated to do things that we normally say we're uncomfortable doing. But what if Putin has strategically gone and taken over some of those independent republics? It's obvious that was never his plan. I mean, it's obvious it was a full-scale invasion and a throw, an overthrow and takeover of a sovereign nation. That's what we're dealing with today. But had Putin simply um, marched to some of these eastern territories I'm not sure we'd be here today, but all of a sudden, Ukraine's getting more than they signed up for. They're pleading to the West. They're actually asking now to be a member of the European Union, fast-track membership into the European Union. What does that do? But I think Larry's on to something in here, and I don't know where to begin going down that road. Um, is China next? I mean, you know, are we going to be in conflict? Is the Western world going to be in conflict with Russia and China? Does China choose sides? I mean, we know that China and Russia made a deal. Putin and Xi made a deal recently on energy production and providing. China doesn't produce a lot of energy. They demand a lot. They consume a lot. So, so there's this unholy alliance between Putin and, uh, and Xi of China. Back in a minute. What a situation yesterday on the air. I want to get away from Ukraine and Russia just for a second. We'll go back there in a few minutes because it is the... Uh, the hot-button political issue of our time, um, State of the Union tonight. But we had um, someone call in yesterday about an event, uh, an, an, an incident in our, in our community here in Florence and another over in Sumter of uh, a crime. And our sheriff, the Florence County sheriff, called in and said he needs help with sentencing. He needs help with the bad guys. He said it's repeat offender, it's repeat offender, it's repeat offender. The majority of Americans are, you know, obeying the law doing what it is they're supposed to do. But in, in California, there was a man arrested three times within 16 hours, which shined a bright light or brought into focus um, the L.A. County emergency $0 bail policy. Retired New York Police uh, Officer Lieutenant Commander Joe Cardinale is with us. Joe, good morning. How are you? Good morning, guys. How's it going down there? So how in the world can law enforcement feel supported if you charge someone with a crime, make an arrest, uh, put that person in the hands of the, the justice system, and 
an hour or two or three later, you're arresting that same person for some similar event. How can law enforcement feel like um, elected officials, magistrates, uh, solicitors have their back? They don't have they don't feel like they have their back. I mean, let's look at it in real terms. I mean, it's like flushing your garbage down the toilet. All right. You get to one part of the uh, pipeline and all of a sudden it just starts backing up. And that's what's happening at the D.A.'s office. And, you know, when they're just not, they're declining prosecution, they're not letting them uh, do the job they, they're supposed to do. And I'm talking about the, the people that are under the D.A.'s. They want to do their job and they're told, no, you'll go by these guidelines. I mean, it's insanity. It's over here in New York. Uh, they're addressing it. But California is more prominent because you get that idiot out there, Gaston, who just keeps writing his own book. And they allow it. And they allow it. So if he doesn't get recalled this time, it's really going to say something about this country, where we are right now and how far we've gone so far to the left and into a, to a socialism that this is just going to continue to happen. I mean, you want to see something funny? You're talking about the oligarchs and everything. In Russia, people can't get out of jail. All right. And in the United States, we can't keep them in jail. So, Joe, what can we, the public, do to aid and assist? I mean, I, I don't pass laws. I don't vote on an issue. I don't sit on a city, a county or a state delegation. Uh, the federal government does what the federal. But what can we as the general public do um, to support law enforcement and encourage our political apparatus to do a better job of allowing you to do yours? Well, you know, it's the basics. It's who we vote for. Everybody sits at home and says, oh, there's an election coming up. And you always get the people that sit there and say, well, my vote's really not going to make a difference. And that's not true. All right. Because you can't complain once the fox is in the hen house. All right. You got to keep them out of the hen house. And that's the whole thing. You got to keep these people from getting elected in the first place. Now, in certain areas like in New York, we're not going to win anything with the, Dem- with the Democrats the way they are over here. And, the, and the, what do you call it? The uh, liberals. All right. And they put people in that suits their needs. But you have to reverse that. You have to, you know, look at it from a from a point like where you guys are down there. I'm sure it's a lot easier to get people elected that do the job right. But this whole thing of this overwhelming voting, all right, is it has to stop, all right, because when you have the same party doing the same thing and they keep going so far to the left and they keep going towards the socialism values, all right, we do have a problem. But it is the election everything and get them recalled, all right. Start recalls all over the United States. Bring up the, you know what the problem is, two guys, I got to tell you this, they're not held civilly liable because they have immunity. The judges have civil, you know, immunity from, uh, from uh, what do you call liability and so do the DAs. So they just ride this wave out as long as they can and do as much damage as they can, right? Their bail reform, everything else, it just stinks. Joe, so you, it, well, I mean, you, you're yeah. retired, but what, I mean, we, we have law enforcement officials in this studio from time to time. Their big concern is young people not wanting to be involved in law enforcement because they feel like they're on an island. They don't feel like anybody advocates on their behalf. You're retired. What do you say to young people who, who just they, they, they consider going down the road of making law enforcement a career, but they hear these sorts of stories and it discourages them and, and we begin not getting as quality a police officer as we historically have? You know, that is the biggest problem. Over in New York, they're having trouble get, uh, to get people to get take the test. This used to be the most pristine job going, and now the people don't even want to take the test. You know, it's not going to change until people start taking the backs of the police officers again. It's not going to change until they get their indemnification again. Over here, if you do your job and you do it properly and they still don't like it from the people that sit on the city council, they're going to take your job, they're going to put you in jail, and they're going to have you take your uh, home and everything away from you. 
You can't have that anymore. You got to say, listen, a law enforcement has to get back to the same idea across the United States that it always has. You do the job, we'll back you up 110%. That's what you need to get the message out for. And then a lot of these politicians are starting to do it. But if you notice, they're only Republican uh, you know, candidates, they're only Republican elected officials. So you got to get the other side to stop going so far to the left that they're going to fall off the face of this earth, which hopefully should happen. All right. But we got to get law enforcement back to where it was, where it's the respected job it once was. Not every cop is a thug. All right. And that's just the you know the thing that they put out there is that all cops are evil, the whole nine yards. And with with everything going on today, they still focus on defunding and getting a police department that kowtows to them. They want to do just the bare minimum. But when it comes to them, they hire all their own personal security guards and everything. They leave everybody else floundering out there with these idiot criminals out there. Joe, you explained it and articulated as well as anybody. That's why we love having you, my man. Appreciate your time. Have a great day. You too, my friend. You take care. Thank you. Um, Spoken like a true retired New York City police officer. Um, I love that accent. I mean, it just sounds like it's central casting as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. You know, here's an interesting point. And, and let's go here for a second. So Derek Chauvin um, was, was guilty of taking the life of George Floyd, right? I mean, the, the, the courts have spoken. I mean, he's in prison. He'll probably never, ever get out of prison um, because of a just a terrible thing he did, an atrocity against mankind. Uh, you can argue whether uh, Floyd disobeyed and didn't follow police commands. Uh, the judicial system has spoken and said this is the verdict rendered. This is what we perceive justice to be. What happens to the DA, the judge, the solicitor that allows somebody uh, to, to not be incarcerated and they commit another crime? I mean, what's different? I mean, Chauvin commits a Floyd commits a crime. Chauvin is to to protect and serve. He gets out of bounds. A, a terrible tragedy happens. You got a dead man and a man in prison. What about the what about the the, the violent offender that goes before a judge, a DA, or a solicitor is charged with a crime by law enforcement? He's not incarcerated for any period of time. He's bonded out. He's bailed out, or either he has one of these crazy zero dollar bail policies enacted. He goes out and commits another crime. Is that is that event not? I mean, is the judge, DA, solicitor not responsible? I mean, if, if, if Derek Chauvin is responsible, then why is the judge not? I mean, I understand immunity, but should they have immunity? It, maybe not individually, but collectively. Let, let's say let's say that, that somebody, you know, God forbid, somebody hurts Cato, and they, they, they get arrested, and they go before a DA, a solicitor, a judge, and the judge posts $1,000 bond, or no bond, no bail for that matter, and the person is released back on the street, and they come and do harm to Dave Baker, a member of his family. I mean, is the judge not guilty, complicit? I mean, is there and not there's some, no accountability? There's there. no accountability at all, and that, that's a little bit of what I mean. T.J. Joy said yesterday that the sheriff of this county we're broadcasting from that ju- the judicial system is broken. I mean, that's not a radio show host looking for ratings. That's not a provocateur trying to get a rise out of his audience. That was the duly elected sheriff of this community. And he didn't say it. Uh, he didn't dance around the edges. He didn't say, well, maybe we could do this or maybe we could do that or maybe we could do a little something different. He said, and I quote, the judicial system in this county, in this state, in this nation is broken. Do they not deserve more support? 
I mean, if law enforcement does the diligent dive, they do the hard work necessary to prove someone's a criminal and they're dangerous, they're, they're, they're a violent threat to society, and we let those people back out of incarceration in, in the name of prison overcrowding or judge sentencing or sentencing reform, whatever language you want to use, whatever sort of um, uh, political theatrics or political judicio you wish to, um, to put in play. Well, when the sheriff of this county says he doesn't feel like he's getting support from the judicial branch of our government, that's a problem. And we've got to address that. And, and, and if, a, if a police officer is, is charged and held accountable for um, misbehaving on the job, using excessive force, uh, being derelict in his duty, why is a judge, DA, and solicitor not, not under the same punishment? Who lets the guy out that commits multiple crimes? It's not the deputy sheriff. It's not the police officer. I mean, if, if a guy has, I mean, if, if a lady, if anybody has committed a violent crime, what should be the consequences of committing that violent crime? And from what I'm gathering, the violent criminal is let out on the street again to commit another violent crime. And when they commit that next violent crime, who's guilty of that? Who is the only reason that person's back on the street able to commit that second violent offense? It's someone responsible for sentencing, responsible for setting bond, responsible for setting bail. So the police officer can lose his job, go to prison for taking bad action, doing his job. The judge, DA, or solicitor can't? Really? I mean, you know, do they have complete and total immunity? I just think we've got to address that. But I think we've gotten incredibly lax in that regard. And I think we've, we've got to understand that we got to, we got to, I mean, we talked yesterday about a crime problem we have in this community. And I offered up a couple of suggestions. I don't know that they're as easy to, to, to come about as I think they probably would be, but let's at least try. I mean, if, if we've got a criminal problem, if we've got a crime problem in this community and the ratings and rankings say we do, Tim uh, troublemaking Tim brings that to the forefront. That's kind of his pet peeve. I mean, he's kind of on his high horse, so to speak, about crime in the PD, Florence County in particular. If we've got a crime problem in Florence County, what are we doing to address it? Are we doing anything fundamentally different today than we historically have to keep the people of Florence safe? Sumter was a high-rated crime area. I mean, Florence and Sumter were rated as if they were major metropolitan areas. And we can talk economic development. We can talk education. We can talk infrastructure. We can talk stormwater drainage. We can talk development or not. None of this matters if we aren't safe. And right now, more and more Florentines and residents of Florence County and Sumter County don't believe they're safe. Who's responsible for that and who's doing something about it? That's my question. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. Hey, hey. Uh, great show as always. But uh, it, it, it's a it's a tough problem dealing with crime. But uh, the first thing you got to do is, without a doubt, is support your police officers. And these repeat offenders, especially repeat of violent offend, uh, offenders, uh, you probably shouldn't let them out three or four times in a row. That's a, that. That's just common sense. If, if I got if I if I've got a mean dog that I know it bites and I and I let it loose off the leash and it bites somebody, well, I'm going to get in trouble and I'm going to su- suffer some grief and financial grief. And, and if I'm crazy enough to let that dog loose again, 
and let it bite somebody else. Uh, I'm, I'm responsible for that. So uh, I think uh, some of these uh, DAs and uh, judges should have some level of responsibility or at least a review panel to see if they're actually competent and they're doing their job. But uh, what I really wanted to call about is, like, you don't have to worry about anything in, 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 uh, in the world and the world events and what Putin's doing because we got Elburn Fudd over there at the Pentagon and Herman Monster uh, looking out for the global warming. Well, we won't have to worry about global warming, uh, Mr. Kerry, if uh, if uh, we do a, a no-fly zone and uh, start shooting down Russian jets, because we'll have nuclear winter, and that's uh, and that's uh, that, that's just craziness. I, I hear throwing out throwing out these things because some people don't understand the implications of a no-fly zone. How much how, how much uh, stuff you have to break and how many people you have to kill to enforce a no-fly zone. They're just not thinking about that clearly. In the meantime, don't worry. We're going to have plenty of things in the grocery store and everything, and the supply chain's going to open up because uh, uh, Mayor Pete's going to finally figure out why he's not lactating or whatever. And uh, I I don't know. uh, Maybe it's not Mayor Pete. Maybe it's Alfred E. Newman that's over there and uh, handling the supply lines. Yeah, we got the the mayor's South Bend. Thank you, Mike. Got to take a break. The mayor's South Bend in control of the supply lines. Um, (laughs) He has built some sidewalks in days gone by. I mean, I think he got some transportation funding when he was mayor of South Bend. I mean, who else would you want in charge of the nation's highways and byways? I mean, all of our infrastructure is in the hands of the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who's probably never, ever built a highway or bridge or, or airport in his life. But that's exactly who, um, you know why? Because he's good at the spoken word. And remember, in liberal circles, the spoken word is an accomplishment. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Up next is Breeze. Good morning. You're on. Hey, guys, um, you know, um, when you talk about who's throwing democracy, and that's what the Democrats keep talk, accusing us of doing, but if you wrote a list of things they've done, it would be the longest my arm. Now, if you sit there and say that you're part of police, then you're considered a white supremacist. These people are being let loose on purpose. George Soros and those guys have this design to create anarchy. It's not an accident that they're being set loose. Now, maybe some of these people are just thinking they're doing a liberal thing, but there's a reason for that. And I'll tell you another thing, too, is um, I've been thinking really hard on this thing that's going on in the Ukraine. And I'm still having a hard time making sense of it. But one thing I do know, when this whole COVID thing came out, if you guys remember, I just said, look at who's giving us the information. And look who's for the lockdowns. Look who's for the mask. And then you go further with the vaccine. And everything that they did was to thwart democracy. And so now I'm sitting here looking at uh, the Ukrainian thing. And, of course, you know, you have to do it. Remember how when you make a comment about COVID? Yes, I understand COVID is deadly, but. 
So you say, yes, I understand because Putin is a horrible, horrible guy, but, you know, and there are people that, that the Ukraine and the normal people are the ones that are suffering. But I can't for the life of me figure out the end game here completely. I've, I've got my ideas, but I think that there, the Democrat communists are right now plotting how to turn this into COVID-2. Figure out a way to daggle. At the end of the day, we will lose more and more of our civil liberties in America over a war between Russia and Ukraine. By that, I mean, if anybody, nobody's questioning whether Putin's a bad guy. Tucker Carlson's not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not saying that at all. I feel, you know, and, and, and we are probably the only people that really care about the Ukrainian people. And some of these Russian soldiers that I'm sure don't want to be there. I said, but when you see the people that are supporting this thing, George Soros is supporting this thing. You got also, you got all of these Democrat communists are supporting this thing. Some of them are talking about no fly zones, which would be a perfect way to create some sort of an accident or an intentional conflict there or loss of American lives to try to get the people like you and I on board of a war. Remember, we went to war in Iraq over um, the Iraqis on Saddam violating the no-fly zone. was one of the big things that, that brought us into war in Iraq. So, I mean, there's this stuff, and there's a lot of stuff that's being planned here and connived here. Now, if you disagree with the um, Democrat communist way they rant, they're running things, and you blame, uh, if you blame Biden for the, for us getting into this mess, then you're a traitor to your country. But here's the next kick. China and Russia are in cahoots here, okay? And you have Democrat and Republican politicians that have gotten rich off China. But China has made a deal with Russia to buy all of their natural gas and oil. Okay? So here's the next question is, well, do the Democrats and Joe Biden consider China the bad guys here? Are they going to do anything to China? I mean, China is going to basically be, along with the rest of us idiots, that um, because of Joe Biden that we have to buy our fuel from Russia. But China is going to be financing this war. You see where I'm going? Yeah. So, so what are so what are these Democrat communists going to say about their buddies in China? What is LeBron James and NBA going to say about their buddies in China? What are all these corporations that make billions of dollars off slave labor in China going to say about China? What is Joe Biden and the rest of the Democrat Party that have made billions and billions of dollars off China? I mean. My question is, who's to say that somebody didn't get a check for that $85 billion of uh, military stuff that left in Afghanistan? What does somebody pay for it? Well, how the hell do you know? The craziest ideas you can come up with. I was just on the phone with a guy that's pretty high up. And, it, you know, in this world, special operations, he said the craziest idea that you can come up with oftentimes is the truth. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. You know, I was thinking about China. We'll get with the professors here in just a bit. Is, is there something China learns in this? In other words, it, it looks to me like the Western world, and I'm talking about our European allies, 
Um, we've got our issues. They've got theirs. But we ain't Russia, right? I mean, we ain't Russia. Let, let's at least admit that. So despite our flaws and, and imperfections, is China is China interested in the Western reaction to Russia? In other words, is China willing to be that isolated? I mean, Russia historically, I mean, Putin has shown um, a willingness to be that isolated. Now, I don't know for how long, and I don't know what his motivations are, but is China, I mean, if the Western world is, re- if the European Union and America are that committed to isolating Russia in a way, not buying any energy, not allowing I- any air travel, not allowing any um, financial transactions to take place, is China willing to roll the dice and believe the European Union and the Western world, for that matter, would not treat them in a similar fashion. Um, can Russia live isolated from the Western world? Can China exist isolated from the Western world? I don't know the answer to that. But if I'm uh, in charge of China and I'm watching Germany and what they've done, Switzerland and what they've done, Finland and what they've done, um, they're doing things that we never imagined they would do. And it further isolates Russia. Well, if your biggest trade arrangement is with Russia, aren't you being quasi-isolated as well? Is China comfortable potentially being that isolated? Can the world, here's the here's the, the billion-dollar question, can the world isolate China in that way? Back in a minute. Hey, this is the time of year that I start checking the weather every day. March 1st, right? The dumb short month in the rearview mirror. Too many R's, <laughs> not enough days. Uh, now we got March that we're experiencing and now's when the weather starts changing a little bit if you're not careful you'll have a day in the 80s and i think this week there's right. a day that's like have 85 one, have one last week it was 84 on but here's the Friday. problem Here, here's the problem when you look at the local forecast and i'm talking about florence orangeburg sumter inland uh, it's it's 85 when you go to the coast it's 72 or three uh, the ocean's still cool uh late in the year after the ocean warms up It'll be a good bit, not a good bit. It'll be a little bit warmer at the ocean. I guess the the argument I'm making is the ocean, the the ocean's a big powerful force when dealing uh, with the weather. So it's a lot warmer inland this time of the year uh, than, than it is around the beach. Toward the end of the summer, it kind of levels out and is even a little bit warmer at the ocean than it is here. But you've got that ocean breeze, um, but it's really expensive. It, it gets real <laughs> and, pricey and, get, and getting uh, more so way. day by day. I got a friend who knows a friend, here we go with a friend of a friend of a friend, <laughs> who had a house. They were building a home um, somewhere in the in the, uh, in the Pauly's Island, Georgetown area, building a home. During the process of building the home, they had six offers to buy the home that they're building, and they never intended to sell it until the sixth offer came along. And they said, yeah. And it was like $600,000 more than the appraised value. And it was somebody from up north who just made their mind up. Wow. They were leaving the mask and the vaccine mandates and all this liberal uh, craziness, and they're escaping down down south, which is what a lot of other – what were you going to say, Katie? I was going to say, I talked to somebody in Mount Pleasant yesterday. They said their neighbor sold their house for $800,000 more. Dead serious. That's crazy. And we believe – that that's normal. We believe that that's not a bubble because I've heard some experts say this is not a bubble this time. <laughs> yes, it's a bubble. If this I'll is not a bubble. You, what is? It's always a bubble when asset appreciation goes like that. It's never not 
a bubble. Let's well, go to the phone. And, and, and by the way, the warm weather combined with a little longer daylight every day. Yeah, we're mm, getting there. You're yeah. right. The only thing we don't have is pitchers and catchers reporting. Oh. N- nor do we have baseball uh, ahead, right, Rev? It's coming. Yeah. They're going to get it worked out. They're playing college baseball, right? Yep. I mean, you can watch some college baseball. Sure. Um, so you guys, if they don't play this year, the Braves don't get their rings, right? They don't have one of these great <laughs> opening nights or whatever. They, they play their first home game or their second or third home game. And they have the um, the ring presentation. They're going to get a deal. Ceremony. They're going to hammer it out today. Okay, fair enough. We're still the champs. Though. Yeah, you're right. That's right. Still the champs. I predicted that about midseason. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Uh, Steve in Florence. Hello, Steve. Hey, good morning, guys. I don't know if this affects my worldview, but I'm not religious or anything. Um, but I am all for the death penalty. You know, if there is irrefutable proof that you killed somebody, no 20 years, you know, get your last meal and then die. And then if we can get, you know, uh, child molesters in there somehow, too, that feel great about that. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. Um, I am less supportive of the death penalty today than I ever have been. I mean, there was a day that you could catch me on, um, on my most aggressive moment, and we could have an electric couch instead of an electric chair. <laughs> but, you know, let's sizzle three or four of these violent offenders. I've, I've mellowed a little bit on that. Um, it's interesting how, I don't know, getting a little older, some of your political positions, they don't change, but they modify in some way, shape or form. I'm a fairly conservative Republican. And if there's a two checks in the box, do you support or not the death penalty? I'd probably still check. Yes, I do support the death penalty, but, but I'm not as vigilant about it as I historically have been. Um, and I don't know why. I mean, I honestly, maybe DNA and uh, executing an innocent man had a lot to do with that. And there are some examples in our country's history of executing an innocent man. Is there anything worse than a state execution of an innocent man? I mean, in all honesty, in a democracy, in a representative republic, is there anything that we should be more ashamed of than executing an innocent man? That's that's a pretty bizarre statement to make. Um, that's a bizarre situation there, to put yourself in you know there are situations though like the, the charleston shooter stuff sure like that. I mean, absolutely it's on camera i mean timothy mcveigh yeah you know i mean yeah i mean th- those guys said i no did question. it i don't have any remorse um line him up don't give yeah. him 20 years i mean i'll agree with steve there mm-hmm. uh timothy mcveigh no remorse no regret i'd do it again if i could get out yeah let, let's not feed him for 10 years on on the taxpayer dole that's that's you know let's line him up today and get done what needs to be done and move on. Uh, do we have another call? Because I know we got a professors here, and I want to make sure we're respectful of their time. Rujan uh, in Darlington is on the line. Hey, Rujan. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Hey, listen, uh, you know, the, the 13th Amendment banned slavery uh, and involuntary servitude unless uh, in the event of someone that has been uh, duly uh, tried and, uh, you know, convicted of a crime. My question is, uh, we've got all this stuff going on with, you know, people being in and out of, out of, out of jail. You know, my thing is, why don't, why don't we just bring back the chain gang? It'll, it'll solve several problems as far as, you know, uh, some of the issues around, you know, the state as far as, you know, issues or, or concerning, you know, we have to clean up this ditch or clean up that ditch and, and so on and so forth. My thing is, why don't we just bring back the chain gang? I mean, I, I, for, for me, it's like, yeah, grandma going down the highway, seeing her little grandson, you know, out there digging a ditch, you know, with some some uh, some uh, CO, you know, watching over him. I mean, what's what's the problem with that? I mean, what's the, what's the issue? I mean, you know, 
jail is not supposed to be a place that's supposed to be comfortable, but it's there. You, it's there because, you know, you have committed a crime. So why not bring it back? Yeah, I don't have any problem with that. Thank you, Rujan. Restitution. I mean, you know, uh, there's a penalty and a punishment for the crime you commit. Yeah. Pay your and, price um, to society. Yeah, I mean, I, and I, that's uh, to me, that's a, a good place to pay your uh, price to society. I don't have any problem with that. Hey, Dr. Scott Cobb and Dr. Will Boulder with us. I want to make sure we kind of get this um, this debate started. Not a debate. It'll be a conversation more more than a debate. You probably know more about this, Dr. Coppin, than, than I, I mean, I'm sure you know more about this than I do. I mean, I'm as informed as I've ever been on Ukraine and Russia. I think, I mean, I, I had a kind of a crash course over the weekend, read some things over um, overnight. And um, you, 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 when you take a state-run economy and, and a nation dissolves that's in control of that state-run economy, you have hyper-capitalism. It's kind of a, it's a free-for-all. And you've got lithium businesses and coal businesses and, and titanium and iron and natural gas in the hands of the government. All of a sudden, it's not in the hands of government any longer. Um, these hyper-capitalist um, oligarchs step in and say, I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. Next thing you know, you've got a nation run uh, by, by oligarchs. And, and you know, a, a, a president in Putin and, and the former presidents of, of Ukraine have been very similar, very similar to that. But, but, but I want to ask you this before we kind of get in the blood and guts of, of what we need to do and what American involvement needs to look like. Um, is, U- is Ukraine a corrupt nation or a nation in evolution trying to escape some of its former um, ways of living and, and ways of governance and, and embracing more of a Western perspective? The latter. Uh, we had democratic elections there. We have a president who is trying to get rid of corruption. Um, and while I'm not saying that that has been eliminated entirely, uh, we, we, the, the evidence is pointing in that direction, that, the, that this was a government that was really trying to institute some changes, uh, reaching out to the EU, for instance. Uh, so uh, these are things that take a long that can take a long time. They're very difficult. Um, but I think that's the direction that Zelensky, Volodymyr Zelensky was trying to move the country toward. Are you surprised that Putin didn't just attack some of these independent republics or what he declares independent republics in the Eastern territory, but instead it seems to be a full-fledged invasion? I was, I think a lot of us did not anticipate this. Um, I know some other people who are far more expert than I on this and their position was they would probably just keep the troops there. Uh, to uh, keep the tensions up and use that as a way to maybe get con- extract concessions from the West, like, for instance, saying that uh, Ukraine will not join NATO. Uh, but instead, he decided to throw it all in and launch this invasion. Uh, and I think that uh, Putin has been taken aback, not only by the resistance he's facing in the Ukraine, by the resistance he's facing worldwide. But, but Dr. Bolt, does the resistance worldwide happen if the Ukrainian resistance yeah. is not as effective as it seems to be? In other words, right. has the Ukrainians defending their own nation and homeland been the inspiration that as, I mean, I'm, a, I'm kind of a non-interventionist Republican. I mean, I, I'll Most readily sure. admit that. But, but I'm inspired now yeah. to watch these people defend their homeland, to take on a bully. And, yeah. and I do believe that we are obligated to support aid and assist is that is that a fair i mean is, is that an accounting that that yeah. the had the ukrainians fled the west probably not motivated to or inspired to get involved but now that the ukrainians have been willing to stand up against the bully we feel yeah. obligated no i think it's an excellent point and as you hinted at a few minutes ago my esteemed colleague dr coffin 
has forgotten more about Russia and Ukraine than I'll ever know in my lifetime. And surprisingly, this was never on Andrew Jackson's radar. <laughs> Can't imagine. So, but no, I, I think right. If, but, but, but fighting was. So. But I can assure you, <laughs> right. fighting well, was. Well, if Jackson was president, he and Putin would have had a duel in the, either in yeah. Pennsylvania <laughs> Avenue or Red Square. Mono a mono. Right, shotguns at ten paces. That's how Jackson <laughs> conducted diplomacy. You know, the good old. The Putin would have cheated days. though. <laughs> Jackson would have taken a bolt in the chest for the country and gunned him down right then and there. He made a hero in the Ukraine and the world. But no, if if absolutely right, if simply the Ukrainians had probably as many of us had expected had just rolled over or just fled to the border, fled to Poland. This is over in a couple of days. They've showed an incredible backbone. And of course, a lot of people think, well, yes, yeah, somebody who stands up to a bully, what's more American than that? I mean, this is what we were founded upon. We stood up, fought a, a revolution against the longest of odds. So yeah, we have to sort of back them, uh, not with boots on the ground, but certainly with munitions, guns, uh, anything else we can do to help them stand up. Scott, do we have any idea how many people in Ukraine, Ukrainian people, are, are sympathetic to Russia. I mean, Putin tries to, to make it sound like, you know, it's about equally divided. It doesn't seem to be that way. Yeah. I mean, it seems to be the overwhelming majority of Ukrainians don't want to be isolated, that don't want to be forbidden to participate in things of Western of Western culture and society. So, and, and the follow-up question is that is the Russian people. I mean, what are the Russian people making of going back down the road of creating such isolation for their independent nation. Well, I think one of the things that where Putin made a huge mistake is he he has this belief that Russians, Belarusians, and Ukrainians are all one people. Where does he get that belief from? A from a terrible misreading of history. Uh, he has become increasingly isolated. Been going into the Russian archives, looking at stuff, and and coming with these really odd conclusions regarding nationalism and who these people support. I think he may have assumed that by going into Ukraine, he would have this huge support from the Ukrainian people. But it's become very clear that the majority of Ukrainians, to get back to your question, do not support this. I mean, they are taking up arms. Uh, They are making Molotov cocktails. Yes, you have individuals who are fleeing, but you have a lot of individuals staying behind who are saying, I am prepared to fight and die for my country. That's important. My country against an invading force. Um, as for the Russians, one of the things that Putin has not done is he really has not taken control of the Internet. So information is getting out to the Russian people, and you are seeing these protests occurring. Uh, now, Putin is he's cracking down. I mean, this is clear. He's a, dic- he's a dictator. He's determined to crack down really, really hard. The question is, uh, given the impact that these sanctions are having, not just upon the Russian people, but even the oligarchs upon whom Putin has relied very heavily, can his, um, can his leadership, can he as leader survive figurative, figuratively or even literally? That's the big question. Dr. Bolt, uh, you, you said better than I can that, that Scott knows a lot more about this is single issue than I do. But I understand the language of nuclear arms and yeah. nuclear weapons and the talk of nuclear uh, attacks. Um, surely, surely the audience gets much larger of who's interested and who's not in this border dispute, this invasion of a sovereign nation, when someone puts nuclear war on the table. What are we to make of that? And historically, how rare is that? Well, again, most of us were, I mean, you and I sort of grew up at the end of the Cold War and have had 30 years of sort of peace and not having to worry about this, you know, not having to worry that, hey, I, I may go to work, I may never see mom and dad again or my family because somebody's got an itchy trigger finger somewhere over in Eastern Europe. 
and might decide to launch all of the birds. So now again, this is for a lot of Americans. This is the first time they've kind of had to deal with this. I've certainly, certainly, I can't imagine it's going to, it's going to escalate beyond that. It's probably just posture showmanship. Somebody's trying to be the, the strong man, but gosh, I mean, four or five weeks ago when we first started talking about that, we, all of us here said, there's no way and you know what that he's going to invade. We were all collectively wrong on that one. Uh, heaven help us if we're wrong on that, on the next part. I mean, this is something I can speak extensively on. Um, one of the first instances we had where there was talk of using nuclear weapons was during the Korean War when Harry Truman in 1950 made an off-the-cuff comment about using nukes against China, and the British went bonkers, and Pre- uh, Prime Minister Clement Attlee came to the United States and said, we can't do this. We saw it again happen during the what was called the offshore islands crisis of 1954 to 55, when the Chinese began attack, Chinese communists began ta- attacking two small islands off the coast of China controlled by the non-communist Chinese. Uh, in April of 55, during that crisis, President Eisenhower made a statement in which he said, and I'm, I'm quoting him word for word, nuclear weapons should be used just as you would use a bullet or anything else. So he's preparing to use nuclear weapons against China. And Americans went, are you crazy? Of course, we have the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. So this has happened in the past, but it's very rare. Um, but I totally agree with my esteemed colleague here. This is posturing. I mean, we don't see any evidence that Putin is actually – uh, preparing, but for how do we charge strike? him for being a mild, ma- for being a uh, a crazy man, a madman, and we think he postures at the same time? I mean, either either he's crazy or he's not, or does crazy have limitations? Well, we've talked about Joseph Stalin also as a nutcase, but Stalin. Do under- you think? Do you think? I'm interrupting you, but you know more about this than I do. You think Putin is a psychopath? I think Putin is. I think he's a dictator who's determined to restore the old Soviet Empire. Um, but I also think that while he's become increasingly isolated and while there are concerns about his mental stability, I think even he realizes that if he's prepared to go down the path of a nuclear strike, it means the end of his dreams of restoring the, nucle- of, of the Soviet empire. But if it appears to be the end of your dreams today as we speak with the resistance he's ran upon in Ukraine, the involvement of the European Union, the way the Western world has engaged, isn't the calculus – that there is no good outcome any longer. I mean, I, I'm done either way. I mean, it, well, you there, see what I'm putting on the table there. But there's one other thing we have to keep in the mix here. I mean, you're talking about an all or nothing here. Correct. He may just say, look, I'm just going to throw it all in. But does so he we, have, is, is there any, is, is, are, but what, does the, he have the power to do that? Well, I mean, the, the point I'm trying to make is, aren't we there now? I mean, hasn't he forced himself to an all or nothing sort of decision? I, I don't think so. I don't think he's at, at that point yet. He still believes, I think, that he can win this thing using conventional tactics. I mean, right now there's a 17-mile-long convoy of Russian troops and equipment heading toward Kiev as we speak. But we believe he can win that way, don't we? I mean, don't, don't we believe? I mean, there's no way Ukraine wins this war. No, I think, I think ultimately the Russians are going to win this thing. But to hold on to the Ukraine is going to require them to face a, a guerrilla war that's going to last for a very long time, and it's going to suck the Russian economy dry. Um, but, but to your point, um, I mean, we talked about Stalin being a nutcase he knew that he had to be very cautious about using nuclear weapons. We also have to keep in mind that there are back channels that are taking place. For instance, Mark Milley is in contact with his Russian counterpart. Putin can say, let's launch the missiles. It doesn't mean they're going to be launched. Let's take a break. I want to come back and ask what we believe America's involvement should be moving forward. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. You didn't sign up for this, but you're here, so I'm going to ask. Dr. Bolt, I'll start with you. Would you support... (laughs) military involvement of American forces in the Ukrainian-Russia, um, what has escalated to right. a, a war? No, no, not not yet. Certainly the, 
the flag would have to be fired upon before you could go uh, make that decision. Just I, if 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 it were up to me, just steady as she goes. Dare I say that they've they've handled this quite Biden has handled this quite well. Uh, just keep trying to get keep the the assets frozen. Uh, and just keep doing what you're doing until the status quo changes. Work with the rest of the world. Is that exactly. what I'm hearing you say? I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Dr. Kaufman? Ditto. Yeah. I mean, don't send, in, don't send in military forces. Continue using the sanctions. If you have to ramp them up a little bit more, we do have ability to do that. Um, but right now, what's, what's happening, I think, is working. And we're seeing the Russian economy screaming. Uh, and it, Russians are getting very upset. They're already getting upset with Putin. Uh, and I think it's just a matter of time before either Putin backs down or are very possibly overthrown. Surely we can all agree, uh, Dr. Kaufman included, that tonight in the State of the Union, Joe Biden needs to announce that he's going to uh, reinstate approval of Keystone Pipeline. He's going to uh, permit, uh, he's going to allow for the drilling of oil and, and natural gas um, on government land. He's going to increase the uh, the subsidies to fracking because this is all about energy. I mean, if Putin... Uh-huh. Putin is at his most powerful when energy markets are struggling to produce what is needed to power the global economy. So surely we can count on you, Dr. Kaufman, as a yes vote in the Keystone Pipeline, uh, the permitting of uh, fracking rigs. I mean, I just want to get you on the record with that. I'd like to pass that over to my colleague over here. (laughs) Once a liberal, always a liberal, (laughs) Rev. Well, in, in 1968, Lyndon Johnson gives a nationally televised speech, and at the very end, this is where he announces, I'm not going to run another term and he he added this and none of the speech writers knew about this and they're off camera like oh my god they're like who, who put this in there so if biden did that you know and just sort of said the heck with you guys you know i don't care what you say right we're going to bring back keystone we're going to start drilling wherever we want you know probably met with thunderous applause i mean the republicans would jump oh. out of their seats at that and the democrats like what, what what's going on did, well he could just say really i was temporarily it? insane That's when i right. said it i didn't know well, any better right and, and, it should be it, it makes a lot of sense and he's got he's got the cover right now and if you were to kind of break free from the environmentalist wing now's his chance okay should ukraine be allowed to join the european union not at this point um it's it's great idea but no and even even if the european union were to i should point this out even if the european union were to say today they can join keep in mind that's a years-long process before it actually would take place but right now no what, what is the nation closest to russia that is currently a member of the European Union. Well, you got Poland mm-hmm. as a member. That's mm-hmm. a good example of and that. And Poland is a border nation yes. to Russia. Um, everything in Eastern Europe is a border nation to Russia, pretty much so. <laughs> so I mean, would you would you agree with Dr. Kaufman no, that right. it's not time to allow Ukraine you don't want to, you don't want into to the European Union? pull the pin out of the hand grenade. You want to de-escalate everything. You revisit this maybe four or five years down the road. Cooler heads have prevailed. Okay, give me, a, <laughs> give me a good case scenario. Give me something that could happen in the next um, week that leads us down a much better path and a much more productive outcome, Dr. Kaufman. Uh, we have these negotiations underway between the Russians and the Ukrainians. Um, what could potentially happen is the Russian invasion continues to get bogged down. Uh, there are reports of Russian troops who are disoriented, of Russian equipment that's running out of gas. Uh, they are taking a heavy beating, and that because of the casualties, because of the, the poor execution of this invasion, the Russians are serious about sitting down with these, having these negotiations with the, with, with the Ukrainians and reaching some kind of a ceasefire agreement. Is Russia a paper tiger, Dr. Bolt? I mean, is that well, on the but, table? Right, that's, that's possibly what we're kind of looking at. We've been sort of fearing this, this, the rebirth of the modern Russia, and perhaps they're not as big uh, as we thought they were. Now, certainly we don't want to find that out in a traditional war where we get involved. But again, maybe just moving down the road, perhaps 
if the Russians, if Putin were to say, all right, we're, we're going to start a gradual withdrawal, allows him to save some face, then the United States or the West could say, we're going to remove some of the sanctions, sort of a, a quid pro quo, and then we kind of start to walk things back, de-escalate things. Maybe that's how we untangle this mess. Do you want to call? Let's go to the phone. Michael in Florence. Hello, Michael. Michael, are you there? Hey, hey, he's not there. No, Michael. Um, 843-661-0937. Okay, this is the last topic I want to touch on, and we'll get back to um, domestic politics as the um, as we get some more clarity in the Ukraine-Russian uh, uh, war. I mean, it's actually a war now. I mean, when buildings are being blown up, people are being killed, it is a war. Dr. Coven, I'll start with you here. Um, we had a call earlier about the relationship Russia has with China. Mm-hmm. Russia is our geopolitical adversary of days gone by. A lot of political scholars and economic scholars believe that China is our political, our geopolitical adversary of the future. Do you agree with that statement? Yes. Okay. Uh, but they're both geopolitical adversaries. Yes. Does China risk being isolated from the world if it curries more and more favor with Russia? In other words, they've already got a deal. We talked about energy a second ago. Um, China needs energy to be the world's manufacturing plant. The Western world has embraced, whether we like to admit it or not, you would agree. The Western world has accepted that China is going to be the world's manufacturing plant unless we do something fundamentally different. Russia provides the energy for China to be the Western world's manufacturing plant, but China also runs the risk of being isolated in a similar way to Russia, or do they? Do, Do China have unique characteristics that, that forced the world to deal with it differently than, than Russia and the former Soviet Union. Well, of course, there's the economic impact. I mean, we rely very heavily upon China for manufactured products. Um, and we can go back to the Cold War uh, and look at something called the China Committee, when the United States and many other European, Asian nations imposed economic sanctions on China, pretty much cut off trade with China. But even at that time, because of the, because of the communist regime there, But even at that time, you had some countries like Japan saying this is hurting us economically by imposing these sanctions. There were members of the U.S. Chambers of Commerce who said this is hurting us economically by imposing these sanctions. Uh, And because we rely today, we rely so heavily upon the Chinese. Imposing those kinds of sanctions upon China uh, would have a far greater impact on the United States and, of course, on China, but on the United States than taking similar action with, with the Russians. So... That's something we have to think about. But do the Chinese, Dr. Bolt, look at their relationship with Russia a little different if Russia is not successful in accomplishing their mission in Ukraine? Sure, perhaps. But I think going back to my esteemed colleague's point, I mean, ditto, it, it's apples and oranges. China is at such another level economically that they're almost immune. They've reached such a point of critical mass uh, that it would be foolish, almost suicidal uh, for the West to try and impose these sanctions on them. Had this happened maybe 10, 15 years down the road when Russia had sort of invested more, or had built up its infrastructure. I mean, they, Russia is just resource rich, just doesn't have a, or the means yet to get a lot of it out. Again, had they become more economically self-reliant, then probably it's a whole new ball game. But again, it's happening now, not 2035, 2040. And so that's why these sanctions really have some teeth. I just don't think it's a paper tiger if you were to do it with China at this point. What do you make of, last question, what do you make of the rallying of the Western world, Switzerland, Finland, uh, some of these countries that normally don't intervene in the affairs of Russia, Ukraine, America, for that matter, very neutral sorts of (laughs) countries that don't take political stances. I mean, I've got a theory, and and I'll advance my theory and get your take on this. I believe that Ukraine has inspired the Western world. 
that the Western world believes it's fundamentally different than Eastern Europe because it celebrates liberties and freedoms and unalienable rights. And when we see a country fighting for things that we strongly believe in, we Westerners have a propensity to be more supportive. We become very emotionally invested in some of this. Um, the, the optic of a, a, a Ukrainian putting his wife and daughter on a train and him returning to fight, you know, uh, the, the Russian army, that, that inspires people. Do you believe that is what motivates or has motivated, I don't know, a rallying of the, of the Western countries? A big part of it. Now, of course, you have to consider where Ukraine's located as well. I mean, it is part of Europe. Very strategic. Yes. Yeah. So it's strategically located. Um, but it has been inspirational uh, that the fact they're standing up to the superpower and, and doing as well as they are, uh, willing to put, put their lives on the line, literally, to protect their nation. That is inspirational. And it's one of the areas where Putin has really miscalculated. I think he thought he would go in there, take care of business, and nothing would happen. And not only is he not taking care of business, but he has helped unify the European Union and NATO like they have not been unified in a very long time. What do you think Biden says tonight, the State of the Union, in regards to um, the Russian-Ukrainian battle? I think it's a chance for him to take a victory lap. He'd be foolish not to sort of say, hey, look at what we've done. We've sort of stalled them. And again, for a guy whose poll numbers are sagging and who desperately needs some favorable wins at his back. This Take credit is, whether he deserves the, it or not. Exactly. And that, that, that's what a smart politician does. <laughs> if he doesn't, God help him. Yeah, except Trump. He was such a humble servant. Uh, we, we know that about President Trump, former President Trump. Thanks to both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. The majority of our show today has been about Ukraine and Russia. Um, we've got some breaking news. Zelensky addressed the British Parliament, excuse me, the European Parliament. We'll get to some of that as we uh, progress. But we began the show this morning uh, talking about an election today in the uh, in the Texas Republican primary. It's the first primary of 2022. Uh, we found out this week that President Trump is going to visit South Carolina um, a week from this coming Saturday on behalf of Russell Fry and some other endorsed candidates. I'm taking on Tom Rice, who's one of the Republicans who voted to impeach um, Donald Trump. But one of the interesting dynamics in Republican politics today, in my opinion, takes place in the AG's race in the state of Texas, where the son of Jeb Bush, nephew of George W. Bush, takes on Ken Paxson, who has been endorsed by Donald Trump. Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso is with us. Jeff, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Good morning. So what do we make of this race, the Bush family political dynasty vote, uh, versus the Trump endorsement? Yeah, well, if George P. Bush loses this primary, it'll be the first uh, time in 50 years since a, a member of the Bush family was, was not in elected office. So we're watching that. But you've got Ken Paxton leading his challengers on the Republican side by double digits. It's not just it's I mean it's not not just George P. Bush. It's Congressman Louis Gohmert, who's obviously popular uh, in national politics as well as is in Texas. Um, and and so this this Texas primary perhaps a, a view into the Trump factor and, and how successful the former president's endorsement uh, will be headed into the 2022 midterms. Just as we could uh, get a glimpse as to to how how far left the Democrats will go. Uh, one of the races we're watching there, and include the 28th district, it's held by embattled Democratic Rep. Henry Cuellar, who faces a close progressive challenger, Jessica Cisneros. Um, she supports Medicare for All, the Green New Deal, uh, free public college. She's been endorsed by OAC. 
Uh, and so Cuellar is one of the most conservative House Democrats taking a right-leaning stance on abortion rights, immigration issues, and and, and but he's had some legal trouble, trouble. So that race is going to be perhaps an early tell of which side the Democratic Party will have momentum heading into the midterm. So a couple of different things uh, we're watching as we peel back the layers. We're also kind of watching where the winds are going to be blowing uh, as well as the uh, the primary season really is unleashed today uh, across the country. First in Texas, next primary in North Carolina. But uh, a lot of people are watching this. Jeff, I saw a poll this morning, maybe in a Fox News poll, that had um, people are 49% more likely to vote for a candidate if Trump endorses that candidate. They're 16% less likely, but they're 35% of the Republican electorate who say it has has no impact. That number's up a good bit. Uh, That 35% is kind of a, I don't want to say it's a high water mark, but but is the uh, is this a, a classic example of um, the 800 pound gorilla of one political party finding out whether he's a 700 pound gorilla uh, or still an 800 pound gorilla? I mean, is that fundamentally what we're trying to figure out as we address the, the not just the Bush election, but the Republican primary in general? Yeah, I mean, I mean it's 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 one of the aspects of of this this election that we're watching the the, the polling that suggests a lot of things. Um, in, in fact, there, there, there's been an, also an, an early uh, voting analysis in, in two primarily Hispanic counties along the Texas border that suggests that Republicans are outpacing Democrats in voter enthusiasm and perhaps turnout. And Hispanic politicians in, in the state tell Fox News that that's indicative uh, of a larger trend. But, you know, none of this, you know, we we got to wait till the numbers are in. The votes are in and votes are counted to, to be able to figure all this out and kind of put it down, whether or not it matches with some of the polling, because, as you know, polling has been wrong uh, in, in recent years. And um, so, so we'll see. But but this primary also after SB1 passed, the Texas is a new new GOP voter laws that bans drive through and 24 hour voting. Uh, early voting now restricted to a window, a certain window. Uh, the bill also makes it illegal for election administrators to to, uh, to to send mail-in ballot applications to anyone who hasn't requested one, and it creates new ID requirements for for voting by mail. It also mandates bipartisan poll watcher protections by allowing them free movement within polling places. Remember back in 2020. When uh, when uh, polling uh, workers were, were were told to stay, you know, uh, between six and ten feet away, and they couldn't see what was going on, and, and there was a lot of uh, a lot of angst and anger over over that. And so Texas came in and said, "Look, we're gonna we're gonna change some things." Obviously, it's been controversial, but um, the new law is now in effect in uh, in the state of Texas as as people head to the polls today. Jeff, as usual, great job. Thank you for the information. Have a great day. We'll talk soon. I'm sure. You bet. Thank you. Uh, Jeff Manasso of Fox News. That's kind of interesting. We started the show off this morning with um, I mean, the announcement of Trump coming to Florence. I mean, that's a big deal for Florence. I mean, the former president, still one of the most powerful political figures in the world. Uh, I've argued that the two most powerful political figures in America today neither hold office. I mean, I understand signing bills and, and vetoing bills. I get that. There's still a, uh, you know, a um, an official responsibility that the American president has, Speaker of the House has, uh, Senate Majority Leader has. But um, but but from I mean in the narrative, and I'm talking about in the in the collective narrative, Trump and Obama are still the most prominent political figures in America today. Um, one of those figures is going to visit our city, um, not this coming Saturday, but the following at the airport. Um, initial reports are they're expecting forty thousand people. I don't buy that. 
I mean, I think 20,000 is reasonable and 20,000 is attainable. That's still a lot of people to show up for a political rally for a guy that doesn't hold office and isn't running for office, but he's there to aid and assist. And here's what I'm real curious about. Don't have any inside information at all to the realities of this. This is not a rally for Russell Fry. I mean, you know, he's coming to the district that Russell Fry is running as an endorsed candidate against the incumbent that voted to impeach uh, Donald Trump. But this is, from what I'm understanding, uh, a rally for the GOP in South Carolina. Um, Governor Henry McMaster will be here. I doubt very seriously Governor McMaster is coming to endorse Russell Fry. I just can't imagine Henry doing that. Um, he's coming to rally Republican voters in, um, in the 7th Congressional District and across the state, for that matter. Who will be the other politicians on hand? I mean, is Trump, Trump has endorsed Russell. There's no doubt about that. So he's picked a dog in this fight. He's picked a horse in this race. But, but Trump is not coming solely for that purpose, I don't think. Because if he were coming solely for that purpose, he'd go to Myrtle Beach. I mean, if he, you know, he'd go where 52 to 3% of all the ballots cast will be cast in the 7th Congressional District. Um, he's coming from what we've gathered uh, to support Katie Arrington running against Nancy Mace in the Republican primary in the not-so-red district of, uh, of District 1, Congressional District 1, down to the holy city of Charleston. So, so you know, to say he's coming solely as, as an endorsement of Russell Fry, I, I don't think that tells the whole story. I think Trump's coming to test the waters. How receptive are the people of South Carolina to Donald Trump showing up? I mean, if, if 40,000 people show up in South Carolina, Trump, well, I mean, it'll be so enticed to run for president again. But if he comes down here and 15,000 people show up or 10,000, that's still a big number. But it's not what he anticipated. And there may be some, some loss of inertia and energy within that leads him to make a decision other than running for president. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Last hour of the day, I want to go back to the subject we touched on. Uh, I don't know. We, we've had a very intertwined show. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of something else. We talked about Ukraine and Russia. Uh, we talked about uh, the Texas primary taking place today. The only reason that I find the Texas primary riveting is a Bush is running against a Trump-endorsed candidate in a statewide office in one of the biggest states in America. I had a question about that I was thinking sure. about earlier. Uh, have you ever seen a president do as many endorsements of people as President Trump has. No. I mean, it's just Especially like in primaries. I mean, most presidents stay out of the way in primaries. I mean, they just do. But we've got a, we, we've got a, a fracture within the Republican Party. We're a fragmented bunch right now. Uh, a lot of people say it's six or eight different um, silos. I disagree. I think it's two. I think it's globalists in America firster. And I don't think every globalist is bad. I don't think every globalist is wrong. I think some globalists make perfect sense. I think Marco Rubio is a globalist. I mean, he tries to argue he's an America firster, but I think Rubio's political career demonstrates to me that he's a globalist, but I think he's a good senator. I think Lindsey Graham is a globalist. And it doesn't, I mean, the point I'm trying to make, Cato, is just because you're a globalist doesn't mean everything you've ever done or ever will do is bad for the party. You know, very often we get this all or nothing mentality. You're either with me or you're not. What if I'm with you most of the, most of the time? But, but some of the time, I'm not. Um, I've just never been, I don't, I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I, I just found in my business life, it's real complicated to find the business that you like everything about. 
or can do everything exactly the way you want to do it or have it be done, if you're not careful, you'll end up by yourself when you go down that road. And I've accepted that politics is the art of addition. So, so yeah, do I believe fundamentally that the party needs to be an America first party based on American first values and agenda? Yeah, I do. But that doesn't mean that every single globalist in the Republican Party needs to be banished from the planet Earth. But, but we've got this deep division in America. I think but the reason this, uh, this Texas election interests me, the Bushes made no bones about it. I mean, they, they're globalist. They're interventionist. I mean, that, that, that is fundamentally what they believe as a political persuasion or, or agenda item that, that America has an obligation, a responsibility, and it's in our all of our best interests if we are intervening, if we are involved, if we if we accept globalism as the political ideology of choice. I push back on that. And and the reason I push back on that is that the people that I grew up with were the losers in globalism. The factory worker, the textile mill, the farmer. Um, the, the construction worker, I mean, the manufacturing base in general, the deindustrialization of, of America has led to a lot of heartache in rural America. In and small I'm from, town America, sure, and I'm from small town America. I mean, that is very personal with me, but but I don't allow it to be so personal that I kick everybody else to the curb who doesn't share that disposition. I mean, if you grew up in small town America and you saw what happened to those small towns that you grew up in. And I'm talking about the migration of jobs. Um, the plant that your grandfather worked at is all of a sudden making widgets in Malaysia or China or Uganda or Taiwan or India. Um, there, there's, some, there's some resentment you bear. I mean, there, there's some resentment you hold in your heart. And there's a responsibility the political body has to bear in, in that reality. And I've said a hundred times, I understand globalism. And by that, I mean, I accept the reality that corporations are going to do what? Chase profit, correct? I mean, that's the obligation of a corporation, that the people who do business, who run corporations, have a fiduciary responsibility to generate as much profit as they can. And when those companies believe they can generate more profit in China, that's what they do. I mean, if Nike believed it could make shoes in Seattle for as cheap as they can make them in Shanghai, guess what they'd be doing? They'd be making shoes in Seattle. But, but the marketplace has led them down that road. And I'm not angry at Nike for making that decision. I'm not angry at Caterpillar or, or anybody else who has chosen to be international and globalist in nature. I accept some of the realities there. But, but the, what, what the, political, the political calculus that was never considered, what do we do with the human carnage? These aren't simply jobs. When the newspaper or, or the television or the radio says, uh, they lost 12,000 jobs over the last 10 years in Indiana. 12,000 manufacturing jobs have left Indiana over the last four years. Those aren't jobs. Those are people's lives. I mean, th- those are displaced human beings that now will have to find something else to do. And, and, and the, the political orbit, the political world, the political apparatus, Reb, told these people, don't worry. There are service jobs on the way, and these service jobs will be even better than the manufacturing job. Let those crazy Chinese sweatshops make the T-shirts and shoes and widgets that we consume. There's no honor in that. There's no dignity in that. Let those crazy Chinese and, and Indians do it. We got service jobs coming along. We, we got a better way of life for you in store, and none of that panned out. 
And now there's a, there's a heavy degree of resentment that the American public have toward those people who misled them. That's in essence what, what you know, gave life to, to America first. That was already in place. When they bailed the banks out, that, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Not only have you shipped, you know, X number of millions of manufacturing jobs out of our country, and like it or not, I mean, it, it's a political ideology. You regulate, you stipulate, you mandate, you tax. And by regulate, I mean OSHA and EPA and DHEC and all these other regulatory agencies. It you got real expensive to do business in America. And you could go to China and do business for a lot less money and, and be a lot more profitable. So the American government does bear a lot of the responsibility as to why these corporations are not domiciled in America any longer, why their manufacturing uh, centers and, and factories are in China and India and other countries, because America got real expensive to do business. And it wasn't the labor cost. It wasn't that we had to pay workers more in America. It was the embedded cost of doing business in America via the regulations. I mean, next thing you know, you've got to, I'll give you an example. In my family business, we had a paint shop. I mean, that's where we painted the truck beds. All of a sudden, we get a letter from EPA saying that they've changed their um, emission standard. And all of a sudden, you can't emit this much raw particulate. You can only emit that much. We've got a retrofit a paint shop. Guess what it cost? About $250,000. That's a quarter of a million dollars that you've got to address simply because the regulation got changed in the name of what? Saving the planet. Do you think the regulatory agency in China sent that same letter? I mean, it's the same atmosphere, right? I mean, we all share the same earth. And, and, and you be, I mean, people get resentful about those things. And, and the next thing you know, millions and millions and millions of manufacturing jobs that were in America that provided quality of life, uh, you know, uh, uh, gainful employment, they're gone. And, and the, the political world, the media reported is 12,000 jobs. No, it's not 12,000 jobs. It's 12,000 way of life. I mean, that, 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 that was, I mean, the, how, how many of you out there listening to my voice have some, uh, is your job simply a job or is there a certain degree of your personal wealth and personal worth associated with that? When you close a plant down that a man had worked at for 22 years, that's not just his job. That's his security. That's his way of life. That's something he identifies with. And we believe that we could just simply ship those jobs away and, and not take into account the human carnage that was going to ensue. And that was the great mis political miscalculation, and it really led to Trump. Now, now, I think it got here quicker than I imagined it would because we bailed out the banks. In other words, we shipped all these jobs overseas, and, and you know we promised you uh, service jobs. They didn't come along. All of a sudden, Wall Street gets reckless, careless. You know, they, they, they create a bubble. The bubble burst. And what does the government do? The same government that you believe shipped your job to India or China, what does the government do to Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan when they get in trouble? They bail them out. And that's when it really became um, apparent to me that, okay, somebody is going to step on the world stage. Somebody is going to run for a political office in America with that sort of orthodoxy, that sort of theology, that sort of agenda, and people will latch on to it. And Trump was the guy. Now, once again, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I never imagined it would be a real estate agent, reality TV show star with his own personal jet. I mean, I just, for the life of me, there is no way in the world. But I can tell you this, when Trump rode down that escalator and said some real crazy things, 
a lot of those things that were interpreted as crazy, I knew in my heart that about half the country did not interpret as crazy at all. It was telling it like it was, and they were ready for somebody to tell it like they believe it is. Let's go to the phone. Here's David in the PD. Hello, David. Yeah, good morning. Hey, Ken. Um, I tell you what, at, at the very least, Putin is an opportunist. So when you've got Biden as president, man, can you imagine that window of opportunity for him? And you've got these Davos Democrats, the Jake Sullivans, the Anthony Blinkens, all these guys. And when America has become the industry of climate change activists and community activists and hedge funds and just people that are professional, I call them bureaucrat double dippers, what are you going to do? And I'll give credit to Ukraine. Those are real community activists. They're getting out of the streets, and they're protecting their country. And when I think of Ukraine, I'll go back to the day when we were growing up. They were one of the, the Soviet socialist republics. They were hunkered down in these bunkers and stuff because of us, because they were afraid of us. And now they're scared of the Russians. And Ukraine was always called the breadbasket, the buffer zone. Thank God for us in America, we've got a Pacific Ocean, Atlantic Ocean, and Kansas. Um, it gets to me that Russia has 14 countries that borders on them. No wonder they're so paranoid. Um, and I'll leave it this, man. I, I love Seinfeld. And Larry David, the creator of that show, he's a, a Ukraine Jew. Let's love the Jewish folks. At least they believe in God. I think there's a, a God there that they believe in as far as the Orthodox Church and all that. And it breaks down. All this stuff breaks down to creator versus secular. Jefferson talked about creator. I guarantee you, Putin has never said a prayer in church. He's never collected an offering plate. This cat is, is pure secularism gone haywire. Thank you. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Let's just take what David says as an example and kind of uh, see if we can generate some sort of conversation here. So let me ask you a question. I mean, do we believe Putin's a madman? We know he's a dictator. We, we know he is contrary to the way we see things, right? I mean, he's a socialist. He's a communist. Um, he's a little mysterious well, in I mean, some he, ways, yeah. but he might be a madman. Well, I mean, it could be. It could be a madman, but we know he's a communist. We know he's formerly of the KGB. We know he's a Russian nostalgist or Soviet Union nostalgist. We know there's nothing he would like better than to see the Western world in, in some degree of equilibrium with the former Soviet Union, communism as a governing philosophy. We know that about him. But David just said um, that, that Putin has a level of paranoia about him that, that many, many world leaders don't share. What if America bordered 14 countries? And what if we question the motivation of the 14 countries that bordered America? I think sometimes our sensibilities don't take into account the realities of a world that we don't live in. I mean, we got a Pacific Ocean. We, we got an Atlantic Ocean. We got a southern border and a northern border. Uh, the northern border is, we believe... Um, shared with a country that has a similar worldview as America. I mean, it's not as prominent. It's not a superpower. Canada is, is a little bit uh, 
They're more laid back and reserved at their world standing than we are. That they've never believed it's their job to be as prominent in world affairs as America has perceived its responsibility and obligation since the Second World War. But what would we do today as Americans if Vladimir Putin um, built a, a, a naval base in Mexico? Would we be a little paranoid? I mean, didn't we have the, you know, the um, Cuban Missile, the Cuban missile Crisis mm-hmm. in 60, what, 65, 64? Somebody is in the early, mid-60s. Might have been earlier than that. Yeah, it was 60. Well, Kennedy two, died in 63. Two, yeah. So, yeah, Kennedy died in November of 63, and he was the one, uh, the chief architect of the response of, of the uh, of the Americans. So it had to be in 61 or 2. But, I mean, just think of that, guys. I mean, if we, if we heard via credible sources that Vladimir Putin was building a military base 75 miles away from the Texas-Mexico border, but it's in a sovereign nation. They blessed it. Mexico said, yes, you can build it here. We'll lease you the land. Uh, we'll, we'll swap you some of the, um, for, for, for building the base here, we want some of your technology. We want some of your military fighting equipment. I mean, would we let that stand? Do we have a right to tell Mexico? You can't do that. I mean, these issues get incredibly complicated. We don't deal with the complications of Europe because we don't have all these borders that we share with all these countries. And when you leave Western Europe that has more of a Western worldview and you get into Eastern Europe, there's there's conflict there. There's friction there. There's not uh, a similarity of disposition. In other words, Eastern Europeans have historically been governed by what? Not democracies by any stretch of the imagination. It's historically been, uh, uh, you know, kind of a state-run part of the world. State-run economy, state-run, I mean, the government's in charge of everything, and you kind of exist there. That's just, so so to believe that, you know, um, Putin is the only paranoid world leader there's ever been. How paranoid would Joe Biden or Donald Trump be, or Ron DeSantis, whomever, the American president is. How paranoid would we be as the American people if we found out today via the New York Times that Vladimir Putin was building a military base 75 miles off the Texas-Mexico border? Do we have the right to tell Mexico, you better not let that happen? I mean, it doesn't take long for these things to get real complicated. But but we believe, um, because we've been a bit isolated from that, that sort of border conflict that those, so I told you, man, there, there's a guy that lives in a home. I saw, read this story over the weekend. Might have been the end of last week. There's a person living in a home that he's never left, and he's lived in four different countries in his life. I mean, how crazy is that? I mean, that demonstrates a, a kind of a border instability that we're not familiar with. How many times has the American border moved? When's the last time? The landscape, and I'm talking about the geographic landscape of America changed. Alaska and Hawaii becoming states. I mean, we, we just don't worry about those things. We're not concerned with those things. But what if we found out, as I just said, that Putin's building a base in Mexico? I mean, don't we get a little bit more paranoid about our safety and security? Do we allow that to happen? Do we invade Mexico to stop that from happening? Put that on the, on the table. Back in a minute. 843 is our number. I'm going to do a little digging today and tomorrow before we come back on the air 
And I want to have a serious debate about the best way to put in place judges and magistrates. I mean, I've tried to look during the break. A lot of states are electing, some are appointing, some have commissions, some allow the legislature to do it. Um, What is the best way to elect magistrates and judges? You know, I went back and looked at Section 77. I knew this, but I wanted to revisit. Um, Section 77 basically says um, that any activity done by a presiding judge in the exercise of the power he has been granted which they believe to have been done in good faith. There you go, in good faith. How do you define good faith, Cato? It's a little bit squishy, isn't it? A little bit. Rev, how do you define good faith? I mean, if I let somebody out of, uh, if I give somebody a reduced bond or or allow them to, you know, not have to post bond, a reduced bail or not have to post a bond, um, but I did it in good faith, then I'm not liable in any way, shape, or form for any offense. Um, we used to the terrible situation of, you know, somebody is, is found. So the law enforcement picks up somebody for committing a violent crime. That person goes before a judge or a solicitor or a magistrate. I don't know how that works. I don't know when you go before a magistrate, when you go before a judge, um, what kind of cases does a magistrate hear? What kind of cases does a judge hear? I mean, I understand family court and civic civil court, uh, appeal appellate court. I mean, I get all that. I mean, I understand that but um what distinguishes whether you go to a magistrate's court or, or you go to a um, another court I, I don't know but something does and somebody knows but but here's the question i'm asking our listeners what is the best way to put a judge in place i mean if i said what's the best way to appoint a judge then i'm arguing for appointing judges if i said what's the best way to elect a judge then i'm advocating for elections so what is the best way to put a judge in place or a magistrate for that matter. Um, in South Carolina, the legislature does that. Um, the reason that, you know, the, 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 the detractors for electing judges would argue, well, I mean, if you elect judges, they become politicians and it, it, we don't want politicians enforcing the law, but you want politicians appointing the judges that enforce the law. I mean, do you believe that's impartial? Is that fair? Um, I had a buddy of mine. He's a lawyer friend of mine. I love him like a brother. But he said, I was talking about electing judges one day, and he said, uh, you don't want to do that. I can assure you the lawyers like the way it is. The lawyers hate when we elect judges. The lawyers despise that. And I said, well, that's probably the main reason I'd be for it. <laughs> I mean, if the lawyers don't like it, that probably means it's, uh, it's uh, there's a better chance of getting uh, true justice. So it's complicated, but but what is the best way to put a magistrate in place or a judge in place? And what is the best way to hold that judge or magistrate accountable? Once again, um, if the judge or magistrate, I would imagine, do something that they believe has been done in good faith, there is no liability for any offense. Somebody hits Cato in the mouth. Um, they go, the, the police, you know, arrest that person. That person is charged with a crime. They go before a judge. The judge says, don't do it again, um, but I'm not going to give you any bail. Or I'm going to let you out on $100 or personal recognizance, you know, whatever. And the person goes back and hits me in the mouth. Is the judge liable for me getting hit in the mouth? He damn sure had something to do with it. (laughs) But what is his responsibility? And the American judicial system, there is no responsibility. 
Now, now I, you know, I was talking about Derek Chauvin a minute ago when, and George Floyd. Chauvin actually committed a crime. The person that hit Cato in the mouth committed the crime. The judge didn't. The person that came back and hit me in the mouth committed the crime. That would be an assault offense. But the judge allowed, or the judge was a, a vessel or vehicle of which the second crime was being able uh, to be committed. And, uh, you know, we're talking about crime and we're talking about panhandling and homelessness encampments. We talked a lot about that about that yesterday. But it seems to me that the those responsible for sentencing violent offenders are, are just not doing as good a job. Is it the law? I mean, are, you know, is the law lax or is their discretion become very, very lax? There has to be some criteria. I, I would imagine, but I, I don't if, know. If they if something happens and they let them back out, then as their job as a judge, they've made a misjudgment. So they've done something but wrong. But if they acted in good faith. But there's still got to be well, some I mean, accountability. I, I don't know. I mean, is there? Eventually. I mean, is there eventually any accountability there for a judge? Let, let's say someone um, robs a bank. All right, let, let's say no, someone breaks into Dave's house and steals everything he's got. And they go before a judge, and that judge says, we got overcrowding problems. You know, I'm looking at the law, and it gives me some discretion. As a result of that, I'm going to be sympathetic because I don't think you're a bad guy. And that same person gets out, and that night breaks in Cato's house. What is the system responsible for? Take the judge personally out of the equation. What is the system responsible? Who is liable for that? I mean, I get the guy's a criminal, but he's already shown he's a criminal. I mean, he broke in Rev's house. He's still responsible. Yeah, well, I mean, he's ultimately responsible, no question about it. But somebody enabled him. I mean, didn't you enable? I mean, if he broke into someone's house, and, and the day you let him out, he broke into someone else's house, is there any culpability with the legal system? I mean, ultimately, the law allowed him to get out, right? Yeah, but how much discretion does a judge well, have over the law? Well, ultimately, the judge uh, gets appointed or elected to start with based on the judgments they previously made, I would imagine. Do they? I don't know. But I, mean, I don't know. I was hoping I mean, you knew. I, well, <laughs> yeah, but you know, I don't want to go down that road because I, I think I know some of the answers. You won't like some of the answers. Political expediency. Politics. Right. Political favor. Oh. Poli- of course. Of course. I mean, do, do, we believe, do, do we believe that the judges in South Carolina are the most qualified legal minds in America or in our state? Or are they the ones that were more politically ambitious than others? But I, I don't know the answer to that. Magistrates. How do we appoint magistrates in our state? What criteria, what qualifications do we use? What training does a magistrate have? Somebody steals Cato's boat. They go to magistrate's court. How qualified is that person to hear that, you know, someone stole your boat? may not be important to me because it's not my boat. But it's a big deal to you because it's your boat. Right. And if he gets out and goes and steals your car. Yeah, there you go. He steals Cato's boat. No big deal, the magistrate says. Just a boat. But he gets out that afternoon, steals my car. All of a sudden, he stole a boat and a car. <laughs> and I mean, maybe he needs to steal your I truck mean, so he can pull Cato's I mean, boat. Do we, no, what he needs to do is steal a judge's car. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Or steal a senator's truck. And then you got big then, problems. Yeah, then, then uh, when that's, get done. I, I don't know. And, and look, I, I, I mean, I've kind of been inside the belly of the beast. That, that is one thing I don't have any more clarity on today than, than I've ever had. I mean, we're looking at the example at the top now, the Supreme Court. Uh, Biden has just nominated somebody that, you know, it doesn't have it really doesn't have anything to do with their record. He's going to hate me for this, but I've got a friend. <laughs> just got named a judge. He's exactly who needs to be a judge. There, he's 60 years old. He's been a lawyer all of his life. He has a temperament. 
He has a disposition. He is duly qualified. He has a lot of experiences in his life. He is the absolute best kind of person that could ever be a judge. He's going to hate me for this. I mean, I'd never call his name, but but I, I have full faith in his ability to render just judgments. But but we hear story after story after story after story after story. Is it the legislative branch not giving the judge the equipment he needs to make sure repeat offenders don't repeat as much as they historically have in recent memory in recent time? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, you know, I'm not sitting here saying, "Hey, here's what needs to be done. This is what needs to be done. That's what yeah, needs to be done." What's the role of the solicitors and the district attorneys? That, that, I've, I've never been in trouble with the law. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm not. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a. You know, I'm not a lawbreaker. I mean, I've had some. Uh, when I got in trouble with Lieutenant Governor, the only time in my life I've ever stood before a judge. I mean, I've had magistrate courts and in, in business, and I've had lawsuits in my life. I mean, I've had an, not an abundance of lawsuits, but I've had multiple lawsuits. I've been on both sides of that. Um, there's an old saying: if you're in a business deal over a million bucks, you're gonna probably end up in court arguing about something. And, and there's kind of a uh, an acceptance amongst the business people. That that's just a reality. Um, how, how many? I mean, how many lawyers in business? Sure. Right? I mean, you know, that, that's not. I mean, there's nothing to be embarrassed about when it comes to that. But when it comes to you know what, what we're talking about here, the, the I think Tim called in and talked about someone getting attacked at Hobby Lobby, if I'm not mistaken, and we found out it was a repeat offender. I mean, w- what does that person have to do to not be back on the street? Is there any scenario? out there that that person would be kept in jail, not able to do harm to anybody else. Let's go to the phone. Here is Tony in Calhoun County listening to WTQS. Hello, Tony. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Um, I'm from Michigan, so when I moved to South Carolina, I looked into a little bit of this, so I'm, I'm not an expert by any uh, sense, stretch of the imagination. Uh, we have a what's called a general sessions court, and then we have magistrate courts. General sessions courts are for you know major crimes, felonies, and misdemeanors that exceed I think it's like fifty five hundred or seventy five hundred dollars. These smaller crimes, you know, the, the misdemeanors, um, civil actions, they all go before the magistrates' court. Uh, to Ken's issue about the guy getting released. Uh, when I read the Constitution, I find out that I'm innocent until proven guilty. So even if, you know, say the sheriff, I'm standing next to the sheriff, and Ken's standing next to me, and I grab a knife, and I plunge it into, you know, Ken Ard's chest, um, and the sheriff watches the whole thing, and he knows I did it, and he arrests me for it. When I'm taken before the judge, I am still innocent, you know, for a bond hearing, bail hearing. I'm still innocent until I'm proven guilty. That's what happens here in America, or at least I hope that's what happens. Um, so if the judge releases me on, you know, some high bond or high bail, you know, that would be appropriate because the law sees me as innocent until I'm proven guilty before a jury of my peers. That's all I've got. Well, that's a very interesting point. I mean, I thought about that as we work through this, this debate, um, you know, a preponderance of evidence. How much does that come into play? Circumstantial evidence. How much does that come into play? If someone takes a handgun and, and blow someone else's head off. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm going to use a, a very graphic illustration. And nobody saw what happened. And then the, the, the law enforcement agencies put together a case. They, they you know, go to court. They, they ask for this person to be charged with this crime. 
I mean, do we let that per if there's a preponderance of evidence? What what is the preponderance of evidence that that would allow a judge to say, no, we can't let this guy back out because he may do it again? I mean, he, that that guy's still innocent to proven guilty, right? Due process under the law. I mean, there's no questioning that the Constitution affords that. But but how much? This preponderance of evidence. Like if there's video of the yeah, crime. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, wonder. I'm asking questions. I don't know the answers to. I'm getting a text here from a um, a law enforcement agent that says um, the judges can't be held liable. That they're 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 excluded from any liability. And then, you know, he's right. Seventy seven or section seventy seven says once again, if we believe they acted in good faith or if they have been believed to have acted, um, who gets to believe they acted in good faith? Who gets to decide whether they acted? in good faith or not. The, the point I'm trying to make is there seems to be a lot of law enforcement agencies in America today real frustrated with the judicial system. But I mean, that's not just here in Florence. I mean, that's that's nationwide. We hear story after story after story after story of law enforcement agencies arresting people, charging them with a crime with a preponderance of evidence, that person being bond or bailed out in a nanosecond with some minimal requirement. That person is innocent until proven guilty, but what if they blew somebody's head off with a gun? And there's a preponderance of evidence that says he did the crime. I mean, it gets, it gets real complicated here. The, 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 I don't know, it's morphed into something other than what I intended to talk about. How, what is the best way to address the issues in our judicial system that law enforcement believes need to be addressed. There you go. I think I said that fairly um fairly fluently. What is the best way to address the issues in our judicial system that our law enforcement agencies believe need to be addressed? Because at the end of the day, they are to protect and serve. And I sense their frustration in not being able to protect and serve you, protect you from the same people who commit the crimes over and over and over again. To Tony's point, at how many offenses do you not deserve the presumption of innocence? I mean, if you've committed 25 crimes, you've been found guilty of 25, are you still presumed innocent at the charge of the 26th? By the Constitution, I think you are. Take a break. Back in a minute. Somebody texted me a second ago telling me how um, the judges and magistrates are elected. I know how they are. I mean, I presided over joint sessions that elected judges. I know exactly how they're elected. Is that the way they should be elected? Uh, or is that the way they should be put in place? If you say that's the way they should be elected, you're advocating election. That's the way they should be appointed. You're advocated appoint. Uh, they win the, I mean, the, a judge gets to become a judge when the majority of the House and Senate, um, the joint session, the majority say that's the guy we want to be this uh, circuit court judge, this family court judge, this Supreme Court judge. Magistrates are no different. They're appointed and then elected by the legislature. Somebody appoints that person, and then there's an election of the entire body. So, I mean, I know how it happens. Is that the best way for it to happen is the point or conversation I'm trying to create. Let's go to the phone. Jay in Hartsville is our next caller. Hi, Jay. Hey, y'all. Um, uh, Ken, I just have to say that uh, – your friend, the judge that was just uh, just appointed, I, I've known him for over 30 years now, and, and this is a situation where the system worked. No question. Because there is no guile in this man. He didn't seek this. He's an honest, upright man, and this is a situation where it worked. Um, and so, but as far as the sentencing goes, 
although it's not a perfect system, I'm wondering if the state could adopt a system like the federal court system has to where the crime committed has a point system and the judge has a set of guidelines within that he has to abide by when sentencing the individual. And if it is a repeat offender, then that points, those points go up and the sentencing guidelines increase as the points go up. So if in fact, someone does get out, commits another crime and goes before the judge, then his, he is enhanced to have to serve more time because the points go up. Um, and so it's a system, whereas, like I say, it's not perfect. It, it doesn't allow the judge to so much slap someone on the wrist and say, well, don't do it again. Jay, because why is that the case? A, I get you. And I'm with, why is that the case at the federal level, not at the state level? Probably because there's more money to put into the prison system to build more prisons. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So Thank you. Just a thought. Well, that, that's a good so, thought. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate the call. And yeah, I mean, th- these are conversations that I enjoy having one with another. And I don't, I don't come from this issue as somebody who knows it all. I mean, I certainly don't suggest I'm knowing exactly what to do or what we should do, what we, what we shouldn't do. Nor am I condemning the judges on the bench in South Carolina. I'm, I'm not condemning nor condoning uh, the way and we do it. I'd like to it. hear some arguments uh, because I'm not really familiar with this issue, but arguments for and against appointing versus. Uh, electing. Well, it's a little bit like Ukraine and Russia. We didn't know anything about Ukraine nor Russia, the border, until this happened. And now I think all of us know a little bit more. We're not uh, experts. We're not officials. We, we don't We don't need to be giving the president advice on what to do or what not to do. But we are a little bit more informed about some of the realities that the world is dealing with. It's the same thing here. And it really is a civics lesson. I mean, Jay makes a very valid point. I didn't know that. I didn't know there was a set of stipulations for federal judges that doesn't exist at the state level. It sounds to me like judges at the state level or the non-federal level have more discretion, more interpretations to make, uh, more liberties and freedoms of which not to abide by certain guidelines. Um, should we address that? Is, is that a worthy conversation to have? So, so I want to be crystal clear. I'm not arguing that we have bad magistrates. I'm not arguing that we have bad judges. The point I am trying to make is there is a frustration amongst law enforcement today that that is is real and it's intense. And they feel like they're doing their dead level best to get dangerous people off the street and the judicial system are allowing those people to go right back on the street. I mean, that's kind of the real world problem that most of us are dealing with. Once again, how this happens, where this happens, should this happen? Are there complicated conversations to be had about that? But I think we can all agree if someone commits a violent crime, they shouldn't have the opportunity to commit a violent crime that very day or the next. I mean, there's got to be a changing of standard in how we deal with that. Law enforcement needs to be supported in doing their job. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Wait till tomorrow to call. We only got about 30 seconds or so before we get off the air uh, today. I want to be crystal clear. When I throw these things out there, many issues I've made my mind up. You're not going to change my mind. I'm convinced. I know enough about it to have landed here, and I'm convinced that's where I need to be. On some of these issues, I don't know. I mean, I am well aware how judges get elected or appointed then elected. I'm well aware how magistrates, uh, the same thing there. 
but but is that the best way? I mean, that that's kind of the debate that I think is uh, is worthy. And if it is the best way, are we doing it the right way? Can we make it better? Jay just mentioned some of the federal stipulations that don't apply state. Enjoy your day.